The four faces of Christ in the Gospels answers to the order of the faces of the cherubim shown in the book of Revelation chapter 4, since this is where the Lamb is manifested. And so we made the point that the gospel faces of that particular uh, passage in Revelation 4, the lion and the ox and the man and the eagle, answer to the faces of the gospel records as we have them. And in fact, how we're going to start our studies is on each occasion we're going to follow a set format for our considerations. Firstly, I'm going to look at the face of the cherub in Scripture in the tribe and in the prophet. We're going to see that the four major prophets also, we believe, answer to the faces of the cherubim. Then I'm going to look at the opening of the gospel and the genealogy of the gospel. And having looked at the opening and the genealogy, I'm then going to walk you through a number of key things in the gospel, including several major themes in the gospel, And finally, time permitting, we're going to come to the end of the gospel and look at the closing commission that the Lord gives to his disciples at the end of each of the gospel records. So in brief, we're going to look at the opening, then we're going to look at some matters in the body of the gospel, and finally we're going to look at the close of the gospel, so that as it were, we've taken the totality of the gospel record to establish the particular cherubic face or the particular portrait of Christ, which we believe this gospel writer is presenting. The second thing for you to know is that I've actually got a set of notes here, which give me all the details, and you're going to get a set of these notes at the end of our studies, God willing. But I'm not going to give them to you now, for two crucial reasons. One, because if I do... You will be reading ahead of me and stealing all my thunder before I've delivered. (laughs) And the second thing is, because we all know taking notes is good for our minds and for our concentration anyway, so I'm just going to say this by way of, um, of just a sort of a helpful comment, is at the start and the end, the opening and the close of each of, of these gospel records, you're going to need to take your own notes now so that you can transfer them into this booklet when you get it at the end, perhaps after you've gone home. But in the middle of the talk, I'm going to be covering material that you will get a full printed version of later on. So if you'd just like to put that in your mind, the opening of the gospel and the close of the gospel, you'll need to take notes now. There won't be anything else in the handout you receive. But everything else, you'll get a full copy of it at the end of our studies. Well, enough of the introductory comments. Let's start now with the face of Matthew, the face of the lion. Now, just imagine for a moment that you were up face to face with a lion, a real lion, looking straight at him, and he, by the way, looking straight at you. So now, what what, what do you think would impress you looking at the face of a lion? Well, I can think of at least three things. Firstly, I'm sure that you'd be impressed with his gleaming eyes. Secondly, with the impression of coiled power. And thirdly, with his majestic roar, should he deign to open his mouth while you were there, well, in fact, if you were still there. 
Well, what's the line used of in, in terms of Scripture? I think the line's found in the following three ways in terms of its, of its uh, usage in Scripture. First, it is a symbol of leadership. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 3 talks about the line that turns not aside for, for any. Judges chapter 14 verse 18 talks about, about the, 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 the sense of leadership of lines. The line is also used as, as a symbol of the spirit of courage. In the second of Samuel chapter 17 and verse 10 and in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 1, we're told of those who have the courage of lines or the boldness of lines. And the line is also used in Scripture as a symbol of the voice of power. In Proverbs 19 and verse 12 and Amos chapter 3 and verse 8, we're told about the roaring of a line and the terrifying sound that it makes. So three things, the strength of leadership, the spirit of courage, and the voice of power. And I think that all of those things that the line is used of in Scripture suggests to us the theme of what the lion might represent. Which is, of course, because the lion is a symbol, isn't it? In fact, what we're going to find in these studies is that all the cherubic faces are symbols. We're not going to end up by saying that Christ is the perfect lion, are we? We're going to say that Christ is the perfect whatever the lion symbolizes. Well, the lion is a symbol, we believe, of kingship, is it not? So here's the second thing. What about the lion in the tribe? Well, which tribe did the lion relate to in our, in our four-square encampment last night? Well, it relates to the tribe of Judah. Now, come to Genesis chapter 49 and to Jacob's blessing upon his sons at the time of his death and just see what it says concerning Judah in that place. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 8, in the blessing of Jacob, it says this, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Why would they bow before Judah? Well, because, verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh shall come. So you see, Judah is a lion, verse 9, and Judah was the royal tribe, verse 10. The scepter of kingship belonged to the tribe of Judah. So here's the theme then of the lion in the tribe. Judah was the royal tribe. So what about the prophet then? The lion in the prophet. Well, the first of the major prophets is the prophet Isaiah. And what's interesting about Isaiah is that we're told that he was a man of royal blood himself. Isaiah was related to the king. And in fact, he prophesies in the royal city of Jerusalem. In fact, he will prophesy concerning the royal city of Jerusalem. And one of the great things about the uh, about the prophecy of Isaiah, brothers and sisters, for which he is famous, is his visions of the kingdom, scattered through the length and breadth of the prophecy of Isaiah, are the visions of the kingdom. This is the face of the lion in the prophet Isaiah. And in fact, it's in this particular prophecy, 
in this particular prophet that we're going to read in chapter 2 of the king in Zion, in chapter 7, in chapters 7 to 12 of the Emmanuel king, in chapter 33 of the king in his beauty, in chapter 55 of the king who will be leader and commander of the people, Isaiah is the prophet of the lion face, kingship. So now we've got the lion in scripture, the lion in the tribe, the lion in the prophet. So now let's come to the gospel. So in Matthew chapter 1, have you ever thought about why Matthew chapter 1 opens in the way that it does? This is what Matthew chapter 1 says. The very opening of the gospel. It says, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Oh, let's just stop there for a minute because... We need to think about something already. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Do you know that that's a quotation from another Bible passage? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. That's actually an allusion, and we won't turn to it, but it's an allusion to Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1, which says, this is the book of the generation of Adam. And now in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we've got, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. Now you see, the interesting thing about Adam is that as the firstborn son of God, he had the right of rulership and he had the right of dominion. But Adam lost them both through disobedience. And now in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be given the Gospel of he who will recover the right of rulership and to whom will be granted again the right of dominion. This is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ The second Adam, he'll become the king that Adam never did, you see. Oh, and do you see what it says in Matthew 1 verse 1? The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Of course, that's chronologically incorrect, isn't it? He shouldn't be called the son of David, the son of Abraham. Doesn't Abraham come before? No, he's the son of David, says Matthew 1 verse 1. Because he's going to be connected to the royal line and the royal family and the royal house because this is the face of the line. He's the son of David first and foremost, says this gospel. So who's David then? Well, do you notice what it says in this genealogy of those, many of whom are kings in Matthew chapter 1? Verse 6, And Jesse begat David, the king. And David, the king, begat Solomon. So in this one place in Matthew chapter 1, pertaining to the man David alone, he's twice referred to as the king. But Jesus Christ is the son of David, says verse 1. See, that's what this gospel is going to be about. This is the face of the line. So if you were to look at Matthew chapter 1, what would you say is the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew? How long does the genealogy run for? Well, I'm going to save you time by telling that I think the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1 is the whole chapter. The whole of Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ in this particular chapter. But it's extraordinarily interesting, and let me show you why. Just hold your hand in Matthew chapter 1 for a moment and come back to our reading from a couple of days ago in the second of Samuel chapter 7. Do you remember the famous uh, promise 
or covenant made to David. In the second of Samuel, chapter 7, it says this, concerning the promise made to David of the royal Messiah King to come. So this is what David was told. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. So what's the first thing we're told concerning the genealogy of Messiah in the second of Samuel 7? Why? That he must be a son of David. Verse 12. Whoever Messiah is, he's got to be David's son. But he's more than David's son, isn't he? Because verse 14 says, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. But that's God speaking. So the Messiah, King of Israel, has to be two men in the one. He's got to be the son of David, verse 12, and he's got to be the son of God, verse 14. This is the promise of the Messiah King, the lion face. Now, come back to Matthew chapter 1, and just notice beautifully how Matthew chapter 1 is divided. Have you ever noticed this before? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, is the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, verse 1. And verses 1 to 17 are written to prove that whoever Jesus was, he is the son of David. That's the first half of the chapter. And you'd never guess what the second half of Matthew chapter 1 is all about, would you? From verses 18 to 25. Why these verses are written to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is thereby the Messiah King of the second of Samuel, chapter 7. He's Son of David. He's Son of God. That's how this gospel opens, you see. This is the face of the Lion. The kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me show you two or three particular themes now in this gospel, things that I would consider to be key themes or major themes in the gospel of Matthew. Now, you don't have to take a note of these. You can just listen if you wish, because we've finished the opening now. You don't have to commence writing again until we come to the close. Mind you, I don't want you to, to, to deprive you of writing further notes if you would like to do so. Here's three key themes out of the gospel of Matthew. The first one is the majesty of strong leadership. You see, kings need to be decisive characters. Kings need to have personalities that inspire their subjects. And Jesus is presented to us in the Gospel of Matthew as that type of person. Let me give you two key words in the Gospel of Matthew. The first one is the Greek word shfroda, which is the word translated in the English exceedingly. It's found seven times in the Gospel of Matthew, only once in Mark, only once in Luke, and never at all in the Gospel of John. It's a key word in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And you see, what's interesting about this word is it relates to people's reactions to Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, for example, we're told that people were exceeding joyful when they saw Christ. We're told in Matthew chapter 17, verse 6, that they were filled with exceeding awe on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told in Matthew chapter 19, verse 25, that they were exceedingly amazed by what the Lord said. We're told in Matthew chapter 26, verse 22, that they were exceeding sorrowful at something that he declared. And we're told in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54 that they were exceeding fearful at what they saw upon the cross. Whenever this man moved, wherever he went, whatever he said, people were exceedingly affected by him. He had the personality that a king needs, you see. It's a key word in this gospel. And here's another one like unto it. It's the Greek word proskuneo, which means to worship. To worship. It's found ten times in this gospel and once in each of the other gospels. So in Matthew, this idea of worship becomes a dominant idea. We're told in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 2 that the wise men worshipped Christ. In chapter 8 verse 2 that a leper came and worshipped him. In chapter 9 verse 18 that a ruler worshipped him. In chapter 14 and verses, verse 33 that his disciples worshipped him. In chapter 15 verse 25 that a foreign woman worshipped him. In chapter 28 verse 9 that the woman at the tomb worshipped him. The whole of the gospel of Matthew is scattered with references to those who came and worshipped Christ. Not God, Christ. They rendered homage to him. Now, to whom does one render homage, brothers and sisters? To whom does one pay obeisance? But the king. And that's part of the theme, you see, of this gospel, the majesty of strong leadership. They bowed before this one. So that's our first theme. Well, the second theme in the, in the Gospel of Matthew of particular note is the power of public discourse. The power of public discourse. You see, when kings speak, the people listen. In fact, they lean upon the words of the king. Remember in the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah stood up and all the people leaned upon the words of the king. They depended upon the king to provide leadership in his words. Well, do you know that I believe each of the Gospels is built around a particular structure? And here's the structure of the Gospel of Matthew. It's built around the speeches of the king. Let me show that to you. It's worth exploring. In Matthew chapter 5, we're told this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So now we've got the beginning of a speech, you see. He opened his mouth, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and he taught them. Oh, and by the way, in this particular speech, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 35, he will say, unique to the gospel of Matthew, don't swear by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And Matthew alone will record that expression in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 35. Now, where does the speech end? 
Where does the speech begun in Matthew chapter 5 come to a conclusion? The answer is this, verse 28 of Matthew chapter 7. And I want you to notice the characteristic expression used here for the conclusion of this speech. Verse 28, Matthew 7. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. When he'd ended these sayings, you see, the sayings of the king. And by the way, what's the theme of this speech, Matthew 5 to 7? And the answer is, why, this is the official policy speech of the king, is it not? The official policy speech of the king for those who want to belong to his kingdom. Isn't that what this speech is about? Well, here's the next one. Have a look at this in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, and in verse 1, it says this. And when he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness. And he's going to send them forth. Verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, and now he's going to begin a speech, you see. And it's a speech on this occasion to his twelve apostles that he will send forth. And you know, when that speech concludes, have a look at what chapter 11, verse 1 says, and notice the similarity of expression again. Chapter 11, verse 1 says, It came to pass, when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence. So this was a speech, you see. And he came to the end of the speech. Mind you, it was more than a speech. It says he came to the end of what he commanded them. He commanded them, chapter 10, verse 5, and he came to the end of commanding them in chapter 11, verse 1. Who commands people, brothers and sisters? Who issues commands but a king? So what's the speech about then from chapter 10, verse 1 to chapter 11, verse 1? And the answer is why these are the duties of the king's ambassadors. That's what he's going to outline in the speech, the duties of the king's ambassadors. Well, in chapter 13 of Matthew, we read this. Matthew chapter 13, verse 1 says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore, and he spake many things unto them in parables, saying. And now he's going to bring forth certain parables. And you know, what he's going to do is he's going to give a selection of parables outside of the house, chapter 13, verse 1, and then he's going to give another set of parables inside the house, chapter 13, verse 36. But by the time he's finished all of them, well, it says this in chapter 13, verse 53. And just notice again our characteristic expression. Matthew 13, verse 53. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. He finished his sayings, he finished his commands, he finished his parables. It's a speech, you see. And if we were to ask, well, what's the speech of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew 13, verses 1 to 53? The answer is, these are the parables of the kingdom of heaven, are they not? Well, what other parables would we expect out of the mouth of the Lion King, but the parables of the kingdom? Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 says, 
at the opening of the gospel, the opening of the chapter rather, in Matthew 18 and verse 1, it says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child into, unto him and set him in the midst of them and said... And now we're going to have another speech of the king that runs from Matthew chapter 18 verse 1 through to chapter 19 and verse 1. And what's it going to say in chapter 19 and verse 1? Why? It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee. It's a speech, you see. And the speech of Matthew chapter 18 verse 1 to 19 verse 1 is a speech concerning the spirit of the king's government. The spirit of the king's government. How this king will reign. With what spirit he will guide his people. Again, in Matthew chapter 23, we're told this in the first verse. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and Pharisees. And so now he begins a speech. And that speech, by the way, runs through to chapter 24, verse 1, which, although it doesn't use quite the same expression, is certainly the equivalent. In Matthew 24, verse 1, it says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And clearly the speech of, of this uh, occasion has now come to an end. And the speech of Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, to 24, verse 1, is the king delivers his great denunciations, his woes upon the Pharisees. And now another speech will begin. In this very same chapter, in chapter 24, verse 3, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples asked him a question, and Jesus answered and said, verse 4, and that speech that begins in Matthew 24, verse 3, will not conclude until the end of chapter 25. In fact, it will conclude in chapter 26, in verse 1, when we read this phrase, and it came to pass, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said unto his disciples. So this is the last speech of the king. And if we were to ask, what is this speech about? It's about the final apocalypse of the king in majesty. The final apocalypse of the king in majesty. So here's two of the great themes out of the Gospel of Matthew. The majesty of strong leadership and the power of public discourse. Now I see from my time that I'm not going to be give, able to give you the third theme, but let me just give you two or three other, or maybe four or five other, little key things that are relevant in this particular Gospel. In the notes that you'll receive at the end, you'll have as follows. Three notable inclusions in this gospel, three important omissions, three special features, three Old Testament references, three key words, three unique passages, all pertinent to this particular gospel, painting the face of the Lion King. Well, let me show you just one of those. First of all, Matthew chapter 19. One of the three notable inclusions in this gospel. In fact, it's more than a notable inclusion. The particular verse we're going to look at is, in fact, unique to, to Matthew's gospel. Do you remember how in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 27, it says, Peter, and Peter answered and said unto him, Behold, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Now, this episode of Peter's question is found in other gospel records as well. But the next verse 
verse 28 of Matthew 19 is absolutely unique to this gospel. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A king sitting on his throne. And not only a king sitting upon his throne, brothers and sisters, but a king who offers to others the opportunity for co-rulership. Who can offer others the chance to sit upon a throne? Why, only the king, surely, can dispense thrones to others. In Matthew's Gospel, one of the special features of the Gospel is the role of the angels. The angels are found in all the Gospels. But they're found in a special way in Matthew's Gospel. We've only got the time to look at one of these references, but just come and have a look at Matthew chapter 13 and verse 41. It's in a parable, but it's a parable about himself. It's a unique feature of the Gospel of Matthew, the way in which the angels appear. And this is what it says, Matthew 13 verse 41. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. Did you notice that we read that too quickly? Shall we try that again? The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. Oh, did you notice that? And they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend. You see, this man commands even the angels, and they obey him. He's the king, and they gather all things out of his kingdom. Only Matthew's gospel will picture the angels in this way as being subordinate to our Lord Jesus Christ, and it will do so over and over and over again in this gospel. Every gospel's got Old Testament references. And they're there to show the particular portrait of of Christ that this gospel writer is painting. Come back to Matthew chapter 2. And do you remember this reference? You'll know it well, but you might not know one thing about it. In Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? By the way, of course, king of the Jews. We've seen his star. We've come to worship him. And when he gathered together, when Herod, verse 4, had gathered together all the chief priests and scribes, he demanded of them where Christ shall be born. And they said unto him, verse 5, Why, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor that shall rule my people Israel, and the shepherd king of Bethlehem, which is the subject of the prophecy of Matthew chapter, of Micah chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, is quoted by the, by the scribes and Pharisees here as to where the Messiah king would be born. But did you know this, brothers and sisters? That only Matthew quotes the Micah reference. 
No other gospel makes reference to this passage. Only Matthew's gospel. The promise of the Messiah King of Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 25, which we read as our reading today in the daily readings, do you remember the parable with which the chapter closes? And needless to say, the parable of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, is only found in this gospel. It's only in Matthew. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Verse 34, And the king shall say, the king shall say. So this is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And of course the lesson of the parable is that it is the king who rewards or punishes. The king who sits upon his throne. And this parable of the king dispensing rewards or punishments is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Oh, there's a whole lot of these, brothers and sisters. Won't it be helpful when you get your notes at the end of the week? So let's come now to the close of the Gospel. And uh, now you need to begin to write notes again if you want to have any record of these events. In Matthew chapter 28, uh, by the way, I believe that in each of the gospel records, the Lord gives a commission to his disciples. In most cases, in, in fact in the first three gospels, it happens to be at the very end of the gospel record. In John's, not, not quite so, but both the commission and the close of Matthew's gospel run together. It's Matthew 28 verses 16 to 20. So let's just come and have a look at these verses then by way of conclusion to see whether how the gospel opens and what's in the body of the gospel is matched by what's at the conclusion. So Matthew chapter 28 verse 16 says, The eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. It says they went away into Galilee. Now why did the disciples go into Galilee, do you think, brothers and sisters? Well the answer is because they were told to do so. In fact they were told three times. Once in chapter 26 verse 32, once in chapter 28 verse 7, and a third time in Matthew 28 verse 10. Three times they've been told to go to Galilee to meet the Lord. But you see, I think that that's an allusion to a pro prophecy that said this, concerning a king to come who would sit upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice forever, concerning this king to come, a prophet would say this, When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her, afflict her by the way of Jordan, be, uh, 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 sorry, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, in Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light hath shined. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. The light has shined in Galilee, the prophet. Isaiah, the prophet, by the way. And the light was the promise of a king to come to sit upon the throne of David. 
And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, that the disciples should go and meet him in Galilee. And not just in Galilee, says verse 16 of Matthew 28, but on a mountain. Do you know that every time a mountain occurs in the gospel record of Matthew, it's got something to do with his kingship. He gives his policy speech on a mountain in chapter 5, in verse 1. He offers a prayer after the people have tried to make him king in chapter 14, verse 23. The Gentiles experience the power of the king to heal in chapter 15, verse 29. The disciples are awestruck by the majesty of the king in transfiguration in chapter 17, verse 1. The king begins his promise of his final apocalypse in chapter 24, verse 3. And now in chapter 28 and verse 16, the disciples will at last meet their Lord in Galilee, but on a mountain. It's all to do with the kingship of Christ, which after all is what the psalm said, did it not? Yet have I set my king upon my holy mountain, my holy hill of Zion, Psalm 2, verse 6. And do you see what it says, verse 16 of Matthew 28? He sent them into Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. The Diaglot translation says where Jesus had ordered them. Who gives orders that others might obey, do you think, brothers and sisters? But the king. And so verse 17 says, and when they saw him, they... Proscunio, they bowed the knee, they rendered homage. This is the last of the references to men and women who will worship the Lord in this particular gospel. They rendered obeisance to him as his king. And Jesus came, verse 18, and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. All power, all authority. He's the king, you see. But you see when it says the Lord said it's given unto me, do you know I think that's a reference to a promise and a prophecy. It says this in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. One like the Son of Man came before the Ancient of Days and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. It was given unto him, says Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 and the Lord says, Matthew 28 verse 18, all power is given unto me. This is the king with his power that all peoples might serve him, says Daniel. And so if it's all peoples... Well, that's why Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the name, of course, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in verse 19 is the royal name of Yahweh himself. So you see, all prospective members of the kingdom of this king must be inducted by baptism into the royal name if they want to be part of his kingdom. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Commanded, by the way, he sent them forth with commands. And lo, I'm with you always, he says, even unto the end of the world. So the king gives his commands, and clearly what verse 20 is, is teaching us, brothers and sisters, is that citizenship of the kingdom 
is predicated on obedience to the king's laws. You want to be in my kingdom, says the king? Then you must learn my laws and become obedient to them. Now you see, what I'm suggesting is this in these verses, Matthew 28, 16 to the end. This is the commission given to the disciples at the close of the Gospel of Matthew. And what I'm suggesting is this, is that the commission in Matthew is the king sending forth his ambassadors so that by their instruction all the world might become his subjects. This is the face that Matthew will paint. So two or three summary phrases then just to wrap that up and put it away. So the face of the lion in Matthew is the face of the perfect king. That's the burden of this gospel. And Matthew is going to depict Christ from the standpoint of his royal majesty and tender mercy. And I'm going to give you a summary phrase for each gospel, which I think is emblematic of the theme of the gospel as a whole. And the summary phrase for this gospel is, that mercy which rules. Oh, by the way, one thing I, I didn't mention, but perhaps I should have in this context, is one of the key phrases, one of the key words, one of the key expressions in the Gospel of Matthew, used ten times in this Gospel, three times in Mark, three times in Luke, and never in John, is the phrase, son of David. Well, it's what we'd expect, isn't it? in this particular gospel, the face of the perfect king. Yesterday, we looked at Matthew, the face of the lion. And you might just remember our summary points at the end of that study, which were as follows. That the face of the lion in Matthew is the face of the perfect king. That the lion is a symbol of that idea. And that Matthew depicts Christ from the standpoint of his royal majesty and tender mercy. And remember, we had a little phrase to summarize the spirit of this gospel, which was, that mercy which rules. Well, now we're going to come to our second face, as our chairman has said, to the face of the ox in the gospel of Mark. And we're going to follow the same format as we did yesterday, which is, we're going to look at the ox in scripture, the ox in the tribe, the ox in the prophet, then the opening of the gospel of Mark and its genealogy, during which time, by the way, you need to take notes if you want to transfer them into the booklet at the end of the week. Then we're going to look at some matters in the body of the gospel, including some of the major themes, 
And finally, we're going to come to the commission of Mark's gospel at the end. And at that time, you'll need to take notes again. So the ox in Scripture then. How is the ox used in Scripture? Well, before we do that, let's just imagine we've come face to face with an ox. The ox, by the way, of the Gospel of Mark. What might we be impressed with if we saw such a face? And the answer is that first we'd notice that this animal has got large, soft eyes. These are not the gleaming eyes of the lion that strike fear into the heart of the beholder. And the second thing is that this animal has what can only really be described as a bovine expression. And were the said animal to open its mouth, we would not hear the fearsome roar of the lion. Instead, we would hear the gentle lowing of the ox that treadeth out the corn. So three things concerning the ox in Scripture. The first thing is it's known for its power to work. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4. It's power to work. Secondly, it's known for its willingness to serve. No, we'll have it off, thanks. Yep. Where it's known for its willingness to serve in Job chapter 39 and verses 9 to 12, where it's contrasted with the wild ox. Its willingness to serve. And lastly, the very word used for ox in the Old Testament is the word used in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 5 for the burnt offering, in Leviticus 4 verse 4 for the sin offering, and in Leviticus chapter 4 verse 10 for the peace offering. And so the third aspect of the ox, it is, it is known for the spirit of sacrifice. So three things. It's power to work its willingness to serve, and the spirit of sacrifice. This is what the ox symbolizes in the scripture. Well, what about the ox in the tribe then? Can you remember what tribe the ox related to? Well, what tribe was it? Can you remember? It's the tribe of Ephraim on the western side of the encampment. Well, if you come back to the words of Jacob again in Genesis chapter 49, who was the progenitor of Ephraim? And the answer is why his father Joseph, from whom Ephraim and Manasseh sprang. Now, just look what it says concerning Joseph in Genesis chapter 49. So now we're looking at the face of the ox in the tribe related to that symbol. In Genesis chapter 49, in the words spoken concerning Joseph, it says this in verse 23. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. And what we're going to learn concerning Joseph is that he was a man that suffered at the hands of others, including his brethren. And later on, concerning Joseph, and at the end of verse 26, it's going to say, the crown of him that was separate from his brethren. And if we were to say, in what way was Joseph separate from his brethren? Well, one of the answers is, he was separated, well, come and have a look at Psalm 105, because he is one of the ways in which Joseph was separate from his brethren, was it not? We're told this in Psalm 105, in verse 16, the archers have sorely shot at him. Psalm 105 verse 16 says, 
Moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. And you see, one of the reasons why Joseph was separated from his brethren is that he was sold into slavery that first he might serve and then he might redeem his brethren who should follow. He would suffer for them by being sold as a servant that he might subsequently redeem them. We won't turn these references up, but in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and Jeremiah chapter 31 and Hosea chapter 10, you'll find the symbol of the ox subsequently then being taken up in the story of the tribe of Ephraim. Yes, the ox is a symbol of service, you see. So now, which prophet does the ox relate to? And the answer is, well, if Matthew, the face of the lion, is the face of the prophet Isaiah, then the face of the ox is the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, of course, preeminently of all the prophets, is, is he not, brothers and sisters, the suffering servant of God? This is the man who understood pain in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 21. This is the man who knew bitterness in chapter 15 and verse 17. This is the man who knew despair in chapter 20, verse 14. This is the man who knew weeping in chapter 9, verse 1. This man would know the bitterness of isolation and the derision of antagonism to his labors. And if we were to ask, well, what did Jeremiah the prophet do? The answer is he preached and he suffered. He was certainly the face of the ox, was he not? In the prophets, brothers and sisters. The suffering servant of God. Well, that brings us to the opening of the gospel record. So let's come now to the opening of Mark's gospel and see how the gospel itself opens and the genealogy pertaining to this particular cherubic face. Mark chapter 1. And this is how the gospel opens its account of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1 verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger. So this is the, the briefest of openings of all the gospels is to be found in the gospel of Mark. So I ask you this question, brothers and sisters, was there a genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew concerning Jesus? And the answer is yes. Matthew chapter 1, which is designed to show us that he's related to David. He's of the royal line. He's the son of David. He's the man who's going to be the lion face, the Messiah king. So what's the genealogy then, do you think, in Mark's Gospel? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In fact, the Nestle version of the Greek doesn't even have the phrase the Son of God. It's simply the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No lineage, no family, no background to call upon or to be proud of. 
Because you see, brothers and sisters, servants don't have genealogies, do they? And there is none in this gospel, apart perhaps from the fact that he's simply the Son of God who will now be involved in his labors. In fact, you see how Mark opens. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face. And interestingly enough, the very first thing that Mark's gospel draws our attention to is the prophecy of Malachi. Why might that be so, do you think? Well, come back to Malachi just for a moment and, and notice perhaps something that's relevant to the story of Mark's gospel, the face of the ox. Do you notice what it says in Malachi chapter 1? Malachi 1 verse 6. It's almost as if the gospel record is saying, if you want to see the face of this gospel, you may find it in the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi 1 verse 6 says, A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If I then be a father, where is mine honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear? A son who honours his father, and a servant who honours his master. See, that's one of the opening words in the book of Malachi. And in fact, what this gospel is going to show is that this is one and the same person. This son is also his father's servant. Come to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi 3 is going to say in verse 17, And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Ooh, did you notice that? His own son that serveth him. And that's going to be the theme, you see, of Mark's gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has come to serve his Father. Come back to Mark chapter 1 and let me just show you something else. Do you notice what it says in Mark 1 verse 14? The record says in Mark 1 verse 14, it says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And you see verse 14 of Mark chapter 1 is the beginning of the Lord's ministry itself. Now his ministry of activity will begin. So how long has Mark taken to get into the story of the ministry of Christ? And the answer is 13 verses. Just 13 verses. Do you know how long it takes in the Gospel of Matthew, brothers and sisters, before the Lord's ministry begins? 76 verses. 76 verses. Do you know how long it takes in the Gospel of, of Luke? 183 verses before the ministry of Christ begins. But when we come to the Gospel of Mark, it says the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and within the space of just 13 verses, he's off, and he's running, 
And once this servant has begun his labors in the Gospel of Mark, he'll never stop until the end of this Gospel record. You see, this is the ox straining to begin in service. There is no delay in the Gospel of Mark. This is the mighty worker who conquers by the logic of deeds. This is the Gospel of incessant activity. This is the face of the perfect servant which is what this gospel will be all about, you see. So two or three key themes then that I think are important in the gospel of Mark. The first is the humility of loyal service that we see in all the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The humility of loyal service. Now, you'll be given some details of this in the notes. But you know that one of the key themes in the Gospel of Mark is that all classes of people are pledged to keep his works and his words a secret. The healed, the leaders, the people, the disciples. Jesus performed a miracle, performed a miracle, performed a miracle and said, don't say, don't mention this, don't publish this abroad. Keep this quiet. You see, the labors of the servant were to be quiet and unobtrusive without popular acclaim or prominence after the spirit of Isaiah 42. When it says concerning my servant, he shall not cry nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. The servant labors quietly without fanfare. And one of the spirits of the gospel of Mark will be the humility of loyal service that characterizes the work of Christ. Here's a key word that's not found in the Gospel of Mark. The word kurios. Can anyone tell me what kurios means in the Greek? Kurios. Any thoughts? Yes, it's the word normally translated lord or master. Now, would you expect that word, by the way, to be strongly dominant in the Gospel of the servant? And the answer is, well, probably not. So this is how many times it's used. These are the usages of curios. Now, by the way, you need to be very careful what I say here. These are the usages of curios when Christ is addressed as curios by others before his resurrection. 25 times in Matthew, twice in Mark, 21 times in Luke, and 34 times in John. You see, it's virtually non-existent in the Gospel of Mark, the usage of kurios by which the Lord might be addressed by that term, Master or Lord. Now, let me show you the two times, Mark chapter 7. These are the only two occasions where he's addressed with the word kurios. In Mark chapter 7, we're told that the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus and she says this in Mark 7 verse 28. She answered and said unto him, Yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And you know, I think that when the woman says, yes, Lord, on this occasion, she does not mean Lord or Master. She's using kurios in the way it's found in John 4 verse 11 and 12 verse 21. Do you remember when Andrew brought the Greeks? And they, well, they, the, the Greeks rather came to Andrew and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Do you remember that? Sir, we would see Jesus. I think that's exactly the way in which the woman is using the word kurios in Mark 7, verse 28. She doesn't actually really know who he is. She's not calling him Lord. She's saying, Sir, in that sense. Well, here's the other one. Mark chapter 9, verse 24 is the only other occasion 
where Jesus is addressed in this gospel with the title of Kyrios. It's in Mark 9 verse 24 when straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And interestingly, in Mark 9 verse 24, you'll find the Revised Standard Version omits that verse from the manuscript of Mark. So does Rodderham's. So even, brothers and sisters, does the New American Standard Bible. So I don't think it's there. So what we're really saying is I don't think the Lord was ever addressed as Kyrios, Master, in the Gospel of Mark. Because this is the face of a servant, not a master. The second theme in this Gospel, which I think is special, is the exhaustion of faithful labor. The exhaustion of faithful labor. And what we will have in this particular Gospel is a series of withdrawals that the servant might renew his strength. They begin in chapter in Mark chapter 1 verse 35. Remember when it says getting up a great while before day he withdrew into the mountains that he might pray says Mark 1 verse 35 and from then on this gospel will be filled with the story of the Lord's withdrawals to replenish his strength for the work of service. He'll withdraw in chapter 1 to the outskirts of Capernaum, in chapter 1 again to the wilderness place, in chapter 3 to the shores of Gennesaret, in chapter 6 to the villages of Galilee, to the wilderness of Bethsaida, to the mountains of Gaulonitis, in chapter 7 to the borders of Tyre, in chapter 8 to the town of Caesarea Philippi, in chapter 9 to the heights of Hermon, in chapter 14 to the garden of Gethsemane, and finally in Mark 16 verse 19, the Lord will withdraw unto the Father himself in heaven. This is the gospel of withdrawals as the servant seeks to replenish his strength. And the third theme of the gospel of Mark is that this is the gospel of the dedication of complete sacrifice. In fact, if you come to Mark chapter 10, we have one of those passages which I think are, well, probably perhaps even the key passage in the gospel of Mark. Do you remember how we said that each gospel's got a structure? What was the structure of the gospel of Matthew? And the answer is it's built around the speeches of the king. The speeches of the king become the framework of the gospel of Matthew. Well, here's the structure of the gospel of Mark. In Mark 10, it says this, verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. Now, do you notice there's actually sort of like a progressing theme here in the words of verses 43 and 44? Just watch them. Watch my hand. Whosoever shall be great then becomes whosoever will be chief. And then whosoever shall be great among you becomes whosoever will be the chiefest of all. 
And then whosoever, whosoever shall be great among you shall be your minister becomes whosoever shall be the chiefest shall be the servant of all, the servant of all. Now in Mark chapter 10 and verse 43, the word minister is diakonos. And diakonos means to be an attendant or a helper. Whosoever shall be great needs to become a diakonos, to learn the spirit of administration. But in verse 44 it says, whosoever wants to be the protos, the chiefest, the foremost, needs to become a doulos, the bond slave. There's a progression, a deepening of the spirit of, of service here. And the paradox of Mark chapter 10 verses 43 and 44 is that true greatness, says the Lord, lies in service. Brother Islip Collier had a very nice phrase in his book called The Guiding Light when he says this on page 51. He says there is such a difference between the little man who with enlightened selfishness serves because he wants to become great and the one who with enlightened self-sacrifice served because he was great. I think that's a very excellent reference, the guiding light, page 51. And then Mark 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know that in that verse we have the whole structure of the Gospel of Mark? The first half of the Gospel of Mark, the first section of the Gospel of Mark is the theme, the Son of Man came to minister. And the second part of the Gospel of Mark is, and to give his life a ransom for many. And the whole of the structure of the Gospel of Mark divides into the two portions of the work of the servant. He came to minister, he came to give his life. He came to serve, he comes to sacrifice. This is the face of the servant in this particular gospel. Some of you will know that one of the key words in the gospel of Mark is the word euthios, which is translated in the English as immediately, sometimes straightway and sometimes with one or two other different words, but essentially the word immediately, immediately. It's used on the following occasions in the Gospels. Euthios, 18 times in Matthew, 42 times in Mark, 8 times in Luke and 7 times in John. You see, it's consistent with the theme of this gospel, that everything the Lord does in this gospel is immediately, straight away, right now. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. This is the gospel of service. Whatever he does, he does just as soon as he possibly can in the service of the Father and the Master whom he honors and loves and respects. In fact, let me show you one of the key ideas, one of the special features of the gospel of Mark. Come back to Mark chapter Mark chapter 2. This is a unique aspect to the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 2, the record opens with these words. And by the way, although we're reading from the English, the point that I'm making is that you'll find this is found in the Greek. 
Mark 3, verse, Mark 2, verse 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum. Now, what would you make of that little word and, brothers and sisters? Such a small, seemingly insignificant word, and. What would you make of the force of that in Mark 2, verse 1? Well, the answer presumably is that whatever is going to be dealt with in Mark chapter 2 is following on immediately from the circumstances of Mark chapter 1. Would, would you say that that was the case? So these things happen, Mark chapter 1, and, and then, Mark 2 verse 1, and then this happened. That's the force of the word and, isn't it? Well, look what happens. Mark 2 verse 1, and again he entered into Capernaum. Chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered again into the synagogue. Chapter 4, verse 1. And he began to teach again by the seaside. Chapter 5, verse 1. And they came over to the other side of the sea. Chapter 6, verse 1. And he went from thence and came to his own country. Chapter 7, verse 1. And they came together to him, even the Pharisees. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, chapter 9 verse 1, chapter 11 verse 1, chapter 12 verse 1, chapter 13 verse 1. The whole, once the gospel of Mark begins, brothers and sisters, there's just a whole cascade of ands. Almost every chapter opens with that word in the Greek. Once he begins, he'll never stop. The ox straining for service labours without ceasing in this particular gospel. Do you remember when our Lord rode into Jerusalem, several Bible prophecies were fulfilled? Now, without turning up the gospel of Matthew, can you remember what the crowds shouted when he rode into Jerusalem? What particular passage did they quote when the Lord rode, rode into Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel? Well, stop and think about it, the face of the king. What might they have quoted in Matthew's gospel? Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. Behold, ah, now I've given you the clue, you see. Behold, what's the, what's the passage that Matthew refers to? The riding of the king into Jerusalem. No, not Psalm 118. Zechariah chapter 9. Absolutely correct. Behold, thy king cometh, riding upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Oh yes, Matthew's record refers us to Zechariah chapter 9, the coming of the king. But when you come to the gospel of Mark, Mark, well let's have a look at this in Mark's gospel. Where is it? It's Mark chapter 11 and verse 9. Here's Mark's account of the same riding of the Lord into Jerusalem, you see. And it says in verse 9 of Mark 11, And they that went before and they that followed cried, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. And you're quite right, on this occasion the Lord quotes not from Zechariah 9, but from why Psalm 118 Mark says this is the particular passage that was fulfilled when the Lord rode into Jerusalem. Why do you think Mark quotes Psalm 118? Well, let's come and have a look, shall we? Psalm 118. Of course there'd be a reason. There'd be a reason, wouldn't there, why 
Mark quotes this particular passage, guided by the Spirit, because of the portrait of our Lord, the cherubic face that he's going to portray for us. In Psalm 118, who's the man who rides into the city? Verse 16, Psalm 118. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of Yahweh. Yahweh hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over un unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go into them and praise Yahweh. This gate of Yahweh into which the righteous shall enter. The stone, verse 22, which the builders refused. Verse 26. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We've blessed you out of the house of God. God is Yahweh which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords. Even unto the horns of the altar. Says Psalm 118. The one who rides into the city in this psalm is surely, brothers and sisters, the ox who's coming to slaughter, is he not? And by the way, if we come back to the Gospel of Mark, that's, you know, there's a little phrase that's found three times in this Gospel that's relevant to that. Do you know that of all the Gospel records, the story of the journey to the cross is the longest in proportion in the Gospel of Mark. The story of the journey to the cross itself is the longest in the Gospel of Mark in proportion to its size. So much so that some people have described the Gospel of Mark as a passion gospel with an introduction added on the front. Here's a key phrase. Mark chapter 8. Three times this expression is used. And on each occasion, it's got something to do with the suffering of the servant. Mark 8 verse 27 says, Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea at Philippi and on to Hodol, which is the Greek, which means on the way, he asked his disciples about himself. On the way, that's the key phrase, on the way. And in the context of the story of the Lord being on the way, he will say this in verse 31, he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So the way that Jesus is on is the way of suffering. Well, here it is again in Mark chapter 9. It's this section, by the way, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, where the gospel changes from the first half to the second half. And we move from the Son of Man who came to minister to the Son of Man who came to give his life. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, it says, He came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves? On to Hodo, on the way... But do you see what the Lord had taught them on the way on this occasion? Verse 31 of Mark 9, He taught his disciples and said unto them, 
The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after he's killed, he shall rise the third day. So that which was discussed by the Lord on the way, verse 33, was the story of his sacrificial death, verse 31. And now Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 and verse 32 says, And they were on to Hodo, on the way, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto them, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, shall deliver him to the Gentiles, shall mock him, shall scourge him, shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. So what Jesus taught on the way, verse 32, was his impending death, verses 33 and 34. So the way that this servant travels on in this gospel is the way of sacrificial death, as the ox to the slaughter. So now come to the... Well, let's come and have a look at the close of the Gospel, shall we, in Mark chapter 16. So now, if you had, for any reason, inadvertently perhaps, stopped taking notes, now you need to begin again. Now, just have a look at the commission of the Gospel of Mark, and Notice how clearly different it is to the Gospel of Matthew. What was the Gospel of Matthew? Do you remember? What did the Lord do? He commanded his disciples to meet with him in Galilee, that he might give them instructions. He said, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. They needed to be baptized into the royal name of Almighty God. And he sent them forth as ambassadors to say that those who want to be part of the kingdom of the king must obey the king's laws. And he sent forth his ambassadors as a king sends them forth. Wasn't that the close of the Gospel of Matthew? Well, look at the Gospel of Mark now, verse 15. He said unto them, Mark 16, verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. You see, this had been the work of the servant in this gospel, to preach and to heal. And now his disciples are going to take up the labors of the servant with the same driving energy and commitment to the truth that he showed. Go, preach. These are words of activity, brothers and sisters, that they're called to. And then verse 16 says this, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. You'll find, well, come back to chapter 10 for a moment, which we've just looked at, and verse 33. That, that word condemned is the same word found here in Mark chapter 10 and verse 33. And there the record's going to say that the Son of Man shall be condemned to death. But now, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, the Lord says that those that don't believe the gospel will be condemned. And you see, I think what, the, what we're being told in, in verse 16 is that either way people would respond to the preaching of his servants, of his disciples. 
The gospel is going to demand some sort of action, an action of some sort or another. And I think what we're being told here is that those that would accept the commission of Christ would learn to live the same sacrificial life as the servant. But those that would reject the commission of Christ will experience the same sacrificial death as the servant. Either way, they would be influenced by the face of the ox. So how are they to preach then, these disciples of the servant? We see what Mark 16, verse 17 and 18 says. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Funny thing, isn't it, brothers and sisters, how just a subtle different emphasis on the words produces a different thought. Let me read those verses to you again in the light of the face of the ox. See if you can see the point. And these signs shall follow them that believe, verse 17. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Do you notice anything special about all those words? They're the words of service and activity in the truth. This is the power of the servant to serve in the gospel. This is a commission of labor and effort to cast out, to speak, to take up, to drink, to lay hands. They're all doing words, brothers and sisters. The commission of this gospel is the commission of servants being sent forth to labor in the truth. And so verse 19 says, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And now, by the way, for the first time in this gospel, Jesus is going to be referred to as Kyrios, because now you see, well, now this is the resurrected Lord. The work of his service, in a sense, is ended. So then after the Kyrios had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And yet, do you know, brothers and sisters, I think that even Mark 16, verse 19, is perhaps an allusion to the thought of Isaiah 52 and verse 13, which says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And at the end of this gospel, after all his labors as a prudent and faithful servant, in Mark 16 verse 19, this man is exalted so highly as to sit on the right hand of the father whom he served as a son. To show us all, brothers and sisters, that faithful service in the truth both can and will be rewarded. And so verse 20 of Mark 16 says, And they went forth 
And they preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. The Lord working with them. So even though he's the Lord, he still supports his disciples in their labors. Even though ascended now to heaven, his own activity, his own ministration, in a sense, still continues in support of his disciples unto whom he's now given a commission that they might go forth in his name. So you, th- you see, I-, I think the close and the commission of the Gospel of Mark is, is totally different to the Gospel of Matthew. The commission in the Gospel of Mark is the master sending forth his servants that they might labor in his service. So then, here's our key phrases. The face of the ox in Mark is the face of the perfect servant. And as we've seen with the lion, so with the ox, the cherubic face is a symbol of something. So Mark depicts Christ from the standpoint of his loyal service and dedicated sacrifice. In fact, they will be the two halves that make the completion of this gospel. And our summary phrase for the gospel of Mark is, well, what was it again for the gospel of Matthew? That mercy which rules. But for the Gospel of Mark, brothers and sisters, it is that humility which serves. That humility which serves. Oh yes, I think in the providence of God and by the overshadowing of the Spirit, this is the face that the Gospel of Mark presents to us. Now, of course, remember what we've said brothers and sisters, on our, on our considerations so far of the cherubic faces of the Gospels. Do you remember that what we said concerning the face of the lion was that the lion was a symbol, was it not? And when we came to the face of the ox in the Gospel of Mark, we found that the ox was a symbol of something. So the lion was a symbol of kingship and the ox was a symbol of service. So when we come to the Gospel of Luke, we wouldn't say, would we, that this is the face of the perfect man. Because the man is a symbol 
just like the lion is, and just like the ox, and just like the eagle. We didn't say that Christ was the perfect lion. We said he's the perfect whatever the lion represents. So this is not the gospel here of the perfect man, but of whatever the man represents. Well, let's just imagine for a moment then that we were face to face with a man this time. Not a lion, not an ox, but a man. Right up close, face to face with a man. What things might impress us as we looked upon his countenance in contrast to the other cherubic faces? Well, I think the first thing would be his understanding eyes. That these eyes are unlike any eyes of an animal. These are understanding eyes. And if we were to look at, at the expression of the man, we would see a sympathetic expression. That fellow feeling of understanding that can only be found when gazing upon another human being. And were the man to open his mouth, we wouldn't hear the roar of the lion or the lowing of the ox. We'd hear the intelligent speech of communication, one with another. So how's the man used in Scripture then? Well, do you remember in one passage we're told in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 1 that, that wisdom makes a man's face to shine. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 6 and verse 15 that when the council steadfastly looked upon the face of Stephen, they saw as it were the face of an angel, the wisdom of a man that caused his face to shine. So the man is used in the sense of the spirit of wisdom. And here's another thing, and, and we're going to, I'm going to get you to turn this passage up, or this series of passages up, because here's another sense in which the face of the man, or the idea of the man, is to be found in Scripture. It's in the book of Hebrews, and starting in chapter 2, the man. You see, I think that the man of the Gospel of Luke is not just any ordinary man. He's a special man. He's a representative man. He's whatever the face of the man is going to symbolize. Now, you might remember that in the history of Israel, there were two people, two officers in particular, that had to be drawn from amongst mankind. One was the king, of course, who had to be taken from among his brethren, says Deuteronomy chapter 17. But clearly, it's not the king that Luke has in mind, because that's already been covered by the cherubic face of the lion. But do you see what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17? Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, but to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. And again in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
And again, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And you see, the man here is used in the, in the principle, or to teach the principle, of the sympathy of care. You see, I think the face of the man in the Gospel of Luke is the face of the priest, a special man, drawn from humanity that he might minister with sympathy amongst his brethren. Well, what about the man in the tribe then? Come back to Genesis chapter 49 and again to the promise of Jacob to his sons. Because in Genesis chapter 49, we're told this. Now, by the way, what tribe flew the ensign flag with the cherubic face of the man upon it? The answer is, not the tribe of Judah, which was the face of the lion, and not the tribe of Ephraim, which was the face of the ox, but the tribe of Reuben. Now, do you see what Genesis 49 says about Reuben in verse 3? Reuben, said Jacob, thou art my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. Or as one translation translates that word, the preeminence of dignity and the preeminence of power. Reuben, thou art my firstborn. And the rabbinical writers tell us that the reason why the flag of Reuben had the face of a man upon it was to indicate that he was the firstborn son of the family. Now, if you were the firstborn son... What peculiar rights belong to you as firstborn? And you'll remember that there were three things, were there not? Well, what were they? The responsibility of priest, priesthood, the right of rulership, and the privilege of the double portion. Weren't they the three things that belonged to the firstborn? The responsibility to be priests in the family the right of rulership, and the privilege of the double portion. And you see, what it says is this, Genesis 49, verse 3, read it again. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the preeminence of dignity, the right of priesthood, and the preeminence of power, the right of rulership. But because you are as unstable as water, verse 4, thou shalt not have the preeminence, as Rodahim says. And so the rights of the firstborn were to be removed from Reuben. And by the way, you'll know how the story plays out. Because to whom did the right of priesthood go? Why, to the tribe of Levi. And to whom did the right of rulership transfer? Why, to the tribe of Judah. And to whom was the double portion passed? Why, to the tribe of Joseph. 
And Reuben lost all his firstborn rights to other tribes, but one of those rights from the beginning was the right of priesthood. And the face of the man flew upon the flag of the tribe of Juben, of Reuben rather, to show that he was the firstborn son and therefore had the right of priesthood in his family. You'll remember that when they came to Mount Sinai, we're told that Moses was instructed that the priests must sanctify themselves before they came near God. And yet that episode, as well before the house of Levi, has been consecrated as the priests. Whoever the priests were in Exodus 19, they weren't the tribe of Levi. They were the firstborn sons of the families who were all priests, as was Reuben. So what about the face of the man in the prophet then? Well, now, which prophet is this? Well, we've looked at Isaiah and seen the face of the lion. We've looked at Jeremiah and seen the face of the ox. In fact, a brother asked me about that the other day. And so just one cross-reference you might like to take a note of is that in Jeremiah chapter 11, Jeremiah himself says this in verse 19, I was like a lamb or an ox brought to the slaughter, he says. Jeremiah 11 verse 19, the face of the ox or the servant in Jeremiah. And now we come to the prophet Ezekiel. So let's come to Ezekiel chapter 1 and see how the, how the book of Ezekiel opens. Well, before the book of Ezekiel opens, let me ask you what the theme of the book of Ezekiel is all about. Would anyone like to suggest what the overarching theme of the book of Ezekiel is? What thinkest thou? What's the theme of the book of Ezekiel? It's about one key phrase, one key idea. No, it's not about the Son of Man, although that's clearly a title, and we'll come back to that, by the way. Oh, would you just like to say that again? The Son of who? Son of Man. Why, that's interesting. Luke, the face of the man. The prophet Ezekiel is described, is it 94 times, as the Son of Man. Yes, that's clearly the title that's attributed to Ezekiel himself. But what's the theme of the book of Ezekiel? Sorry? Repent from sin. Now, I think the theme of the book of Ezekiel is the glory of God. The glory departs from the temple, departs to the Mount of Olives, departs away, and finally returns back to the temple at the end of, of the book of Ezekiel. It's about the glory of God in its various stages of manifestation. And by the way, it begins in the temple and ends in a temple. And by the time the book of Ezekiel finishes, there will be a priest in the temple, will there not? A prince and a priest who offers sacrifices in that temple. And we won't turn to it, but if you go to the very last chapter of the book of Ezekiel, you'll find there's a portion given to a company of priests, but they're not Levites. It's another order of priests, the sons of Zadok. And they are given a portion near the sanctuary. And another priest ministers in a temple by the time the book of Ezekiel comes to a close. But have a look at the opening of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, verse 1. It came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives. Of course, we're not told what the thirtieth year relates to. It's not the thirtieth year of their captivity. It doesn't actually say what it is at all. 
And yet the suggestion is that in Ezekiel 1 verse 1, that the 30th year is actually the 30th year of the prophet himself. And I'll tell you why that's interesting, because in the margin it cross-refers you to Numbers chapter 4 and verse 3. And Numbers 4 verse 3 says that the 30th year is why the year that priests began their ministration before God. Well, what do we know of Ezekiel? Verse 3. In the 30th year, verse 3, the word of Yahweh came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, says the record. So you see, what Ezekiel is beginning is his priestly ministrations. It's the 30th year of his own life. He's about to begin his work before God. And do you know what the record says? That when Ezekiel, in his 30th year, begins his ministrations, and we're expressly told that he's a priest, verse 1 says, it came to pass in the 30th year, as I was among the captives, that the heavens were opened. Now, where have we heard all that before, brothers and sisters, somewhere in the Bible? Well, come and have a look at the Gospel of Luke. in chapter 3 and see if this is not the same face as the priest of Ezekiel who's called the son of man you see what it says in Luke chapter 3 in verse 21 <laughs> now when all the people were baptized it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. That's Ezekiel 1, verse 1. Oh, and do you see what it says in verse 23? And Jesus himself began to be about why 30 years of age, says Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Why would we need to know that Jesus was about 30, do you think? And of course you would know that only Luke tells us that important detail. This is another priest beginning his priestly ministrations. Oh, come back to Luke chapter 1. Of course, you know how the Gospel of Luke opens. How does the whole Gospel of Luke open? The opening of the Gospel of Luke. Well, after the initial comments in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, about the reason for writing this gospel, this is how the gospel opens. Luke 1, verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest. And the whole of the gospel of Luke will open with the account of a priest officiating in the temple of God coming forth to bring forth the blessing of God to the people. That's how the whole gospel is going to open, is it not? And from the vision of Zechariah the priest, this gospel will then move to the story of Mary and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose story, by the way, and interestingly enough, is inextricably linked to the story of another child and another woman called Elizabeth, with whom Mary shares time. But Elizabeth, of course, is of the priestly line. And Mary is somehow connected with her. 
So you see what Luke chapter 2 says? Luke 2 says in verse 6, And so it was, while they were in Bethlehem, the days were accomplished that Mary should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Firstborn son, to whom the right of priesthood originally belonged, before the tribe of Levi were ever appointed. Is there a genealogy in the Gospel of Luke? The answer is yes, in Luke chapter 3. And the genealogy of Luke chapter 3 travels in the opposite direction to the genealogy of Matthew. Matthew comes as it were, from the time of Abraham up through David to finally reach our Lord Jesus Christ. But the genealogy of Luke's gospel will travel in the opposite direction, tracing from Christ backwards, 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 backwards. Well, you see what it says, Luke 3, verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, and it's going to come back, back, back. Verse 36, through the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arphaxad, which was the son of Shem, who of course we believe was Melchizedek, a priest after a different order to that of Levi. And finally, the verse 38 says, <clears throat> which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the firstborn son of God, was he not? And to whom therefore belonged the right of priesthood. Do you remember in the days of Nehemiah we're told that there were some priests that were disbarred from the priesthood because they could not trace their genealogy well, the priest of this gospel is able to trace his genealogy right back to the common stock of humanity itself, to Abraham, sorry, to Adam, the firstborn son of God, where the rite of priesthood first began. Oh yes, this priest knows his genealogy. This is the priest for all, the redeemer of everyone, the helper of mankind, the physician for sin, the saviour of the world the face of the perfect man in this gospel will actually be the face of the perfect priest. So three major themes then in the gospel of Luke. The first is, and I'm just going to read these through quickly because you'll receive details of these in your handout, God willing, at the end of the Bible school. Here's the first key theme, I think, in the Gospel of Luke, and that is the power of universal compassion. The power of universal compassion. You see, this is a man who reaches out to touch everyone. It, it, it's like this, you see. In Luke 7, he shows the miracle of life for the bereft widow. 
Again, in Luke, in Luke 7, he will show the blessing of forgiveness for the sinful woman. In Luke 13, the wonder of release for the despondent cripple. In Luke 17, the joy of cleansing for the despised alien. In Luke 19, the warmth of approval for the social outcast. In Luke 22, the gentleness of care for the smitten enemy. In Luke 23, the promise of hope for the penitent thief. And we'll find, brothers and sisters, that this gospel pre Eminently, this gospel is the story of a man who reaches out to touch everyone with his compassion, which is exactly what we would expect of a priest, is it not? This man touches Jew and Gentile, bond and free, male and female. He's a priest for them all. And this gospel will portray our Lord Jesus Christ in that special way. And here's the second theme, which you might think strange, but is actually extremely interesting. It's the blessing of personal fellowship. Do you know that one of the peculiar features of the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is always eating? He's always eating meals. Wherever he goes, he's busy eating. There's three meals recorded that the Lord eats in the Gospel of Matthew. There's three recorded in the Gospel of Mark. There's four meals in the Gospel of John. But the Lord has nine meals in the Gospel of Matthew. He eats a lot more in this Gospel. And by the way, I think that's absolutely extraordinary for this reason. That if you go back to the book of the law, you'll find that the high priest of Israel, by virtue of the constraints of the law was unable to eat with anybody apart from his own family. Only they could eat of the holy things, you see. And this man who was supposed to be in fellowship with all his people could never e even eat a meal with them and share that time together. Such were the constraints of the law of Moses upon the priest after the order of Levi and Aaron. But of course, the priest of the Gospel of Luke is not a priest, is he, after the order of Levi? This is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, you know what it says concerning Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20, is that after the battle of the kings, Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine and sat down to a fellowship meal with Abraham. You see, this priest is able to dine with those amongst whom he labors. And you'll find in the Gospel of Luke that this is preeminently the Gospel of the Lord eating the meal of fellowship with everyone he comes into contact with. Marvelous thing. And here's the third one. What, we would ex what would we expect, brothers and sisters, of a priest? Apart from the power of his compassion and the blessing of fellowship with him, what else preeminently would we expect of a priest but that he would be a man of prayer? Would he not? Well, you see, the example of constant prayer is a dominant theme in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord is recorded as having given three prayers. Of course, we know the Lord prayed a lot more than that, but the Gospel only records three prayers. In the Gospel of Mark, he gives four prayers. In the Gospel of John, he gives one. 
In the Gospel of Luke, the Lord gives ten prayers. He's the priest, you see, at prayer for his people. Oh, and let me just remind you of one unique feature of the prayers of this particular Gospel. Do you know that when the Lord hung upon the cross, he uttered a number of different prayers, did he not? Where might you expect to find this particular prayer recorded out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ? In which gospel do you think these words are recorded? Uniquely recorded. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You see, that's the intercessory prayer for others that a priest makes, isn't it? Only Luke records that prayer in chapter 23 and verse 34. Luke alone, the prayer of the priest who prays on behalf of his people. Because that's what the priest did. He brought the breastplate so that all the tribes of the saints might be engraven upon his heart when he went into the holy place to pray on behalf of his people. And in this gospel preeminently, we will see the Lord at prayer. It's exactly what we'd expect, you see, of, of a good and faithful high priest. In Luke's gospel, we've got two unique parables on prayer. Luke 18, verses 1 to 8, the need for persistence in prayer. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, the need for humility in prayer, only found in Luke's gospel's special parables on prayer. Do you remember in the Lord's prayer, in the gospel of Matthew, that it says this, Forgive us our debts. Who forgives debts? But a king. And that's the word used in the Lord's Prayer in the account of it in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 18 gives the story of a certain king that had two creditors and he frankly forgave all of their debts. A king forgives debts. Forgive us our debts, says the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's account. But in Luke 11, that's not what Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer says. Luke's account says, forgive us our sins. You see, a king forgives debts, but a priest forgives sins, does he not? Oh, and by the way, that's one of the key words you see in the Gospel of Luke. Harmatalos, the word sinners. Found five times in the Gospel of Matthew, and six times in Mark, and four times in John. But 18 times in the Gospel of Luke. Sinners. Why so many sinners in the Gospel of Luke? Well, because this is the... These are they amongst whom the priest ministers. He comes to deal with sinners. And to help them, that's where the focus of his labors are. Oh, and here's another key word. In the Greek, the word for salvation is sozo, S-O-Z-O. And the words out of derived from sozo translated either save or savior or salvation are found 15 times in Matthew, 15 times in Mark, 8 times in John, 
but 27 times in the Gospel of Luke. Salvation. Salvation, salvation, salvation. You see, this is the essence of the priest's ministrations. He comes to save. He comes to save people from their sin. That's what this gospel is all about. If you come to Luke chapter 19, we're told this. This is actually a, a unique story, I think, in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 19, in verse 1, the record says, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. But he did seek to see Jesus, who he was. And we're told in this record, verse 7, that when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. <clears throat> and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house. Who could bring salvation into a house, brothers and sisters, but a priest? Do you know what's interesting about this story in Luke chapter 19? The city of Jericho was a city of priests. There were 12,000 priests living in Jericho in the days of Jesus. 12,000 of them. And not one of them was able to help Zacchaeus. And Jesus visited Zacchaeus as a priest and reached out to restore one who had been left alone by a city full of priests. They saw the sinful man. Christ saw the repentant one. And the record closes with these words in Luke 19 and verse 10. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Oh, isn't that the spirit of priesthood, do you think? Do you know that in Luke's Gospel, just a, a couple of pages back in Luke chapter 15, we're given a parable at the beginning of this chapter, which is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, the lost sheep is also found in the Gospel of Matthew, parable of the lost sheep. But Luke is going to go on and do something that Matthew doesn't. Luke's going to give a second parable, and the second parable will be the story of the lost coin. And then Luke is going to go on and give a third parable in Luke 15, which is going to be the story of the lost sons. Two of them who are both lost, by the way. And you suddenly find that Luke chapter 15 is a collection of parables which collectively we might describe as the parables of the lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. And that collection of parables is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Why would the parables of the lost be found in this Gospel? 
Well, brothers and sisters, for the very reason that was given to us in the book of Hebrews, because is not this the spirit of priesthood? When the book of Hebrews says that a priest can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, that's what the priests come to do, isn't it? To find the lost ones. Do you remember in Luke chapter 4, we're told that the Lord on one occasion went into a synagogue and stood up to read. It's not the only story, not the only account of the fact that Jesus went into the synagogue to stand up and read, but it says in Luke 4 verse 17, there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he opened the book he found the place where it was written. And you know what's interesting is that only Luke's gospel tells us the particular passage that the Lord was going to read from. Only Luke tells us where exactly Christ was reading from. Luke alone says, ah, he was reading from Isaiah 61. And you see what Isaiah 61 starts with? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Ah. So this is a, a reading about an anointed man. Well, who was anointed? Well, it could have been a king. But it might also have been a priest, might it not? And in fact, the reading of Isaiah 61 is going to go on to talk about priestly things, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And the acceptable year of the Lord, we believe, was the year of jubilee ushered in by the priests blowing on the trumpets. Oh yes, this man is anointed to priesthood. Only Luke tells us the passage that Jesus was reading from on this occasion. Do you know that one of the key themes in the Gospel of Luke, remember how we said that each Gospel's got a structure? The Gospel of Matthew is built around the speeches of the King. The Gospel of Mark is built around the two halves of the work of the servant. He comes to minister, he comes to offer his life. Well, here's, I think, the structure of the Gospel of Luke. It's built around the story of a journey. It's the journey to Jerusalem. Like no other Gospel, this Gospel constantly tells us that Christ is on the road to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem. He's passing to Jerusalem. He's always focused on getting to Jerusalem. In fact, in terms of references to Jerusalem in the Gospels, Jerusalem is mentioned 13 times in Matthew, 11 times in Mark, 13 times in John, but 33 times in Luke. And you so see, I think the reason for that focus is because the priest officiates in Salem. That's where he belongs. That's where his work is. That's where we'll find him. And the whole of Luke's Gospel is the story of this man getting to that place so that his priestly ministrations might be accomplished. Well, let's have a look at the close of the Gospel, shall we, and see whether the Gospel closes with the same spirit with which it opens. 
Luke chapter 24, at the end of the story. And this is what the record says, reading from perhaps verse 49. Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Until ye be endued with power from on high. Now, just hold your hand in Luke 24 for a, moment, for a moment in your right hand and come back to Exodus chapter 29 in your left hand. Exodus chapter 29 in your left hand. So Jesus says to his disciples, Tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Now that word endued is the same word found in the Septuagint translation of Exodus 29 in the following places. Verse 5. And thou shalt take the garments and thou shalt endue them upon Aaron. Thou shalt clothe them upon Aaron. The coat, the robe, the ephod, the breastplate and the curious girdle of the ephod. Thou shalt endue the garments upon him. Verse 8. And thou shalt bring his sons and clothe them. Exodus 29 and verse, 20, uh, verse 30. Maybe starting from verse 29. And the holy garments of Aaron shall be his sons after him, to be anointed therein, to be consecrated in them. And that son that is to be priest in his stead shall put them on, shall endue them seven days. You see, this word enduo is a word used concerning the investiture of the priests with their holy garments. And the Lord says, in Luke 24, verse 49, you wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed upon. And you see, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, it would both anoint them and clothe them for their priestly office. Now you see what Luke 24 says. Verse 50. And he led them out as far as to Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. Brothers and sisters, who lifts up their hands to bless the people? That's the priest, is it not? That's Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift up the hands and bless those that minister to God in the sanctuary. In fact, do you know that that's, I think, the idea of lifting up the hands and blessing on this occasion comes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, on the very day of the consecration of Aaron as priest. It says that when Aaron had been consecrated as priest, he stepped forward, and it says he lifted his hands and blessed the people on the day he became high priest. And the Lord takes his people out to Bethany, lifts up his hands, and blesses them. You see, this is the priest, and he's more than just the priest, brothers and sisters, because may I remind you of how this gospel began. It begins with the vision of a priest 
who comes out of the temple and is smitten dumb so that he was unable to bless the people. Zacharias, the priest after the order of Aaron, could not bless the people in Luke 1. And now the gospel will close with another priest after another order who can truly lift up his hands and bless his people. And not just his people, but his sons who are going to manifest the face of the priest after he's gone. And so Luke 24 says, verse 50, he led them out as far as to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, says verse 51, while he blessed them that he was parted from them and why, carried up into heaven. Carried up into heaven. So, of course, you know what that means. You see, Christ as the high priest on the occasion of Luke 24, verse 51, was going into the one place where all the other priests could not go. Was he not? He was going into the most holy place itself. As Hebrews 9, 24 says, Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Isn't that where he was going in Luke 24, verse 51, when he was carried up from them? Oh yes, this priest does better than ministering simply in the temple on earth. This priest can take his ministrations into the very presence of God. And verse 53 of, of Luke 24 says, concerning those that were left behind after his departure, it says they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. See that word continually? It's the same word in Hebrews 9 verse 6 when it says, now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the tabernacle, always, continually. The priests went in there. And now it says that it is the disciples of Jesus who are continually in the temple. The temple? Why would the disciples be found in the temple? Luke 23, verse, Luke 24, verse 53. Well, where else would we expect to find them, brothers and sisters, given that this is a company of priests awaiting consecration to office? Where else would we expect to find them but in the temple? So you see, the commission of Matthew's gospel is clearly a king commanding his ambassadors. And the commission that ends Mark's gospel is clearly a master sending forth his servants to labor. Would you not say that the closing commission of Luke's gospel is a high priest sending forth his sons for priestly ministration? I think so. Oh yes, I think that this is what the gospel of the man is all about. So let's just summarize our thoughts. The face of the man in Luke is the face of the perfect priest. Luke depicts Christ from the standpoint of his intercessory spirit, 
and sympathetic care. His intercessory spirit and his sympathetic care. And now our summary phrase. For the Gospel of Matthew, remember, that mercy which rules. For the Gospel of Mark, that humility which serves. And now for the Gospel of Luke, that compassion which saves. He was all of these, brothers and sisters, the man of this Gospel. face of the eagle in the Gospel of John. So let's begin as we've begun each of these sessions, and may I ask you, brothers and sisters, a question. And the question is, if you were to be face to face with an eagle, what things might impress you, do you think, about the said face? And I think at least these things would come forcibly to our attention. The first is piercing eyes of terrible intensity. Eyes like no others that you've ever seen before. I think the second thing that you would notice almost immediately is a rather cruel beak that looks as if it is capable of inflicting severe punishment. And were the eagle to open its mouth, we would not hear the majestic roar of the lion, nor the gentle lowing of the ox, nor the intelligent speech of the man, but the harsh cry that betokens punishments to come. So how is the eagle used in Scripture then? Well, here's at least three notable features that the Bible says concerning the eagle. It's noted for, firstly, its powers of flight. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5, and Proverbs chapter 30, verse 19. The ability of the eagle to soar, as it were, on the wings of the Spirit, ascending even into heaven itself. Its powers of flight. The second thing is, it's noted for its extraordinary vision. Job 39 and verse 29 tells us of the power of the eagle to see afar off. Such is the tremendous focus that the eye of the eagle has. And the third thing that the eagle is famous for is its speed of attack. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verses 49 to 51 talks about the Roman eagle coming swift, swift to judgment. And likewise in the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter 1 and verses 7 to 9 concerning the advance of the Chaldees, the speed of attack that the eagle is famous for, when it spots its prey, it drops like a bullet. So you see, I think that if we were to say... What overriding idea would come forth from the face of the eagle? We would say, would we not, that this is the face of judgment. Well, let's come and have a look at the face in the tribe. 
Now, come back to Genesis chapter 49 then, and again to the prophecy of Jacob. And now, which tribe are we talking about on this occasion? The tribe to the north that had the, feet, the eagle face, the northern part of the encampment of Israel, was led by the tribe of Dan. Dan, the northern tribe. And in Genesis chapter 49, concerning Dan, perhaps not unsurprisingly, however this prophecy might have been fulfilled or shall be outworked, it says in Genesis 49 and verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall judge his people was the prophecy concerning the tribe that bore the eagle symbol flying upon their flag. Oh, and by the way, do you know what the name Dan means? Why judgment? That's the very meaning of the name of the tribe. And the fact that the face of the eagle fluttered over the side of Dan's encampment was illustrative of this idea that the face of the eagle was the face of the judge, was it not? So what about the face of the eagle then in the prophet? Well, this is not Isaiah, and this is not Jeremiah, and this is not a Ezekiel. Well, this is the last of the major prophets now, the prophet Daniel. So what do we know concerning the prophet Daniel? Well, we know this. We know that Daniel was a man who understood secrets, says chapter 2 verse 19 and chapter 4 verse 9. Daniel was a man who understood secrets. In fact, we know that this is the prophet who saw visions of things that lay afar off in the future. How did Daniel know these things? How did Daniel see these things? Because, brothers and sisters, he was given the eyes of the eagle that he might have spirit insight concerning things yet to come. And if we were to say, do you know how the book of Daniel is divided? The answer is... Daniel chapters 1 to 8, judgment on the nations. Daniel chapters 9 to 12, judgment on Israel. This is the book of the prophet of judgment. Oh, and by the way, of course, now what does the name Daniel mean? But the judgment of Ael, the judgment of God... This is the face of the eagle. Oh yes, I think the face of the eagle is associated with the principle of judgment. And what we're going to find... Well, let's come to the Gospel of John then, shall we? And see if we can see the face of the judge in this particular Gospel. Now, you'll all be aware that the Gospel of John is peculiarly different to the other Gospels. There's a great deal of spiritual material in the Gospel of John that's not the same as the others. What we're saying is that this, however, is the face, the cherubic face, that is dominant in the gospel. It's a dominant theme. Now, by the way, let me just say something about this face before I move on. You see, I think sometimes what we've tended to do with the face of the eagle, the cherubic face of the eagle, is to say, ah, this is the divine manifestation of the Father. That the eagle represents the spirit manifestation. This is the divine aspect of Christ in this gospel. Well, so it is, brothers and sisters. So it is. 
But we've got to be careful that we don't make the eagle the face simply of the spirit. And I'll tell you why. Because all the cherubim are divine manifestations of the Father. The face of the lion is God manifest in his son. The face of the ox is the father seen in the son. Even the face of the man is the father revealed in his son. They're all divine manifestations, not just the eagle face. The cherubim themselves are a revelation of the Father in the Son. So we can't just look at the eagle and say, well, this is the spiritual aspect of Christ. No, I think it's the face of judgment particularly, as we shall see by and by as our story unfolds this morning. So how does the Gospel of John open? John chapter 1. Well, you'll all know this opening. It's famous. And this is, by the way, at once the opening of the Gospel and also the genealogy of the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So you see, this is at once the opening of the gospel and the genealogy. Let me just say that again so you you feel the compression of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh. End of opening, end of genealogy. And what we're impressed with in this gospel is that Christ is inextricably linked to the Father. There are only two stages in this genealogy. It begins with God and then the Son. That's it. There is nothing else. The Father and the Son. But he's not called the Son, is he? He's called the Word. And the Word in John 1 is the eagle cherubim of the Spirit derived directly from God. The Word is divine principle and heavenly thought. The Word is the mind of the Father exhibited in the Son. That spirit that enables someone to be lifted to the heights of spiritual thinking, that enables a person to discern motive and intent with piercing certainty, that spirit that empowers a man to pronounce judgment with faithfulness and truth. And whoever this one was that was manifested as the word, it says in verse 14, that that which he shows is the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we'll come back to that word, truth, later on as a key idea in this gospel. Because after all, we'd want a judge who was passionate about truth, would we not? Of all things. 
So you see, Christ as the Word made flesh spoke the judgments of God. He was able to discern the difference. He was able to pronounce condemnation. He's able to execute punishment because he's the very manifestation of the Father's thinking. Do you know what the judge was in Israel, brothers and sisters? The judge in Old Testament times represented God. He was the mind of God. He spoke forth God's thoughts, God's principles, God's judgments. He was God's mind, spoken to the people. And the man of this gospel, who's been given the title now, the word of God, is the one who will exhibit the principles of divine judgment. Now, by the way, you might think, well, I'm not sure about that in terms of this title, the word. I'm not sure that connection of thought with the principle of judgment. Are you not? Well, come to Hebrews chapter 4 and see what you think. The title, the word of God given to Christ in the opening of the gospel, is it associated with the idea of judgment and discernment? I think it is. The word of God, you see. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told this. Do you remember this famous phrase, verse 12? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes. The eagle eyes of him with whom we have to do is the word of God associated with the principle of discernment and judgment? I think so. Well, this is the title given to Christ at the opening of the Gospel of John. He's God's word. Come to Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, we're told this. At a time yet to happen, in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called, and just think of these ideas in the context of a judge. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of of God. And the man who bears the title in verse 13, the word of God, goes forth in verse 11 to judge the nations. So you see, the title, the word of God, is expressly connected with Christ's authority and ability to judge. So now some key themes in the Gospel of John that are pertinent and, and relevant to that idea of judgment. Well, the first one is this, is that in this gospel, more than any other gospel, we will see 
the spirit of unerring discernment. The spirit of unerring discernment. In this gospel, beyond all others, we will see that principle. And because you're going to get a summary of this tomorrow, I'm just going to run through this quickly. In John 1, verse 48, Jesus is going to show precise understanding of the personal thoughts of Nathanael when he was under the fig tree. In John 2, verse 25, Jesus is going to show intimate certainty of the character of human nature in the context of a meeting with Nicodemus that will shortly follow. In John 4, verse 18, Jesus is going to show detailed knowledge of the marital state of a woman whom he's never met in his life before. In John 6, verse 61, Jesus is going to show particular appreciation of the murmurings of the disciples when they walk behind him in the way. In John 11, verse 11, Jesus is going to show inner prescience of the actual death of Lazarus, even though Jesus wasn't in Bethany at the time. In John 13, verse 11, Jesus is going to show painful foresight of the impending treachery of Judas, even though Judas has never said a word about what he intends to do. In John 20, verse 27, Jesus is going to show specific awareness of the doubtful heart of Thomas, even though he wasn't in the room when Thomas said how he felt. How could this man do these things in this gospel? Because he's got the eyes of the eagle, brothers and sisters. Because the man of this gospel is gifted with the power of spirit insight like no other. It makes him the perfect judge that he can see inside the hearts and minds of people. And here's the second theme which is consistent with that and that is the idea of the clarity of divine judgment. The clarity of divine judgment which is clearly a, a, a theme in this particular gospel. The Greek word for judge by the way is the word krino and the Greek word for judgment is krisis or crisis. Now those two words krino and krisis judge and judgment are found in the Gospels to the following degrees. Those two words occur 18 times in the Gospel of Matthew. Twice in Mark, twice in Mark. Of course, servants don't judge, do they? Ten times in Luke, 30 times in the Gospel of John. But if we were to limit those numbers of words, crino and Croesus, down to just the number of occasions when they refer expressly to Christ as the judge or to Christ exercising judgment, then the numbers change. And now we have zero in Matthew, zero in Mark, zero in Luke, nine times in John those words are applied expressly to Christ as judging and exercising judgment. Have you ever thought about the fact, brothers and sisters, that in this gospel, preeminently in this gospel, you will see a whole, little, a whole lot of, a whole series of judgment scenes. 
There will be the discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 3, where Nicodemus, the master of Israel, suddenly finds himself under scrutiny. There will be the interview with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where she suddenly finds a man that knows all that ever she did. There will be the arraignment of the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. There will be the trial of Pilate in John 19, when Pilate, who thought that he was judging the Lord, suddenly finds himself in the dock. And there will be the examination of Peter in John chapter 21. The whole of this gospel is filled with trial scenes of a man who judges with clarity. And here's the third theme that's consistent with that in, in the Gospel of John. The excellence of personal integrity. See, that's what we need in a judge, isn't it? If a person was going to be a judge, it was so vitally important that their own life be absolutely, own character needed to be beyond reproach. They needed to have outstanding integrity, to be meticulous in honesty, to be scrupulously fair, to be an exemplar of truth in their own lives. If a judge is going to judge others, their own life must be beyond reproach. Do you know that that's a special theme in the Gospel of John? In John 8, the Lord says, which of you convinceth me of sin? And of course, the answer is no one could. In John uh, chapter 18, verse 38, chapter 19, verse 4, and chapter 19, verse 6, Pilate is going to say, and you'll know this on three occasions, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. This is the man who is beyond reproach, which is just what's so vitally important in someone who's going to be a judge. You see, Christ is so clear on personal moral principles in this particular gospel that he perceives each virtue in the context of its antithesis. This is how the Lord saw it. Spirit versus flesh, John 3. Belief versus unbelief. Heaven versus earth. Life versus death. Light versus darkness. Above versus beneath. Truth versus lie. Love versus hate. It's all so clear to Christ in this gospel. There's nothing uncertain about the principles of this man or his own character. You know, this is, might sound odd, but one of the key words, in fact, I'm going to give you three key words in the Gospel of John. One of the key words in the Gospel of John is the Greek word eudaios, which, by the way, is what we would translate in the English as the word Jews. The word Jews. It's found five times in Matthew and seven times in Mark and five times in Luke, but 71 times in the Gospel of John. Would you say that's a key word? I think so. Let me just show you the, uh, one of the early occurrences of that so you might see its relevance. John chapter 1, verse 19. The word Jews. Because, you see, the word Jews in the Gospel of John doesn't just mean the Jewish people. In fact, I think this is probably the very first time that the word Jews occurs. Well, here it is, John 1, verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. See, these weren't just Jewish people in general. This is a particular group of people in the nation. Do you know who the Jews were? 
Well, who would send priests and Levites to examine the credentials of someone who they thought could be Messiah? Who would do that? Who would launch that investigation? Yeah, someone said the Pharisees. Just refine that a little for me. The Sanhedrin. Exactly. I believe the word Jews in the Gospel of John refers to the Sanhedrin particularly. And in this gospel, like no other gospel, you will find the Lord in constant conflict with the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders and the great high priest, the 71 that met together in the council house of... Well, by the way, no, the word Sanhedrin is a Greek word. No self-respecting Jew would have ever referred to it as the Sanhedrin. They had a Jewish name for it. Do you know what the Jewish name was for the Sanhedrin? Beth Dan, the house of judgment. Do you know who the Sanhedrin really were, brothers and sisters? They were the judges of the nation. And in this gospel, the Lord, the special, the perfect judge will be seen in constant conflict with the judges of the nation that were so imperfect in their spirit of judgment. Oh yes, that's a key word in this gospel. The Jews. That's whom the Lord will be constantly debating with in this gospel. Here's a second key word. It's, well, it's translated sent in the English, but it's two different words in the Greek. Apostello and pempo, which both mean in slightly different formats to send. To send out or to send forth. Well, when you put those two words together, they're used the following numbers of times in the Gospels. Apostello and Pempo, to send. Twice in Matthew, once in Mark, three times in Luke. Forty-one times in the Gospel of John. In this Gospel, like no other, the Lord is a sent man. Sent, sent forth, sent out. question is, sent by whom? Well, come and have a look at John 3, verse 34, as an illustration of this idea. Because I think this is the force of the word in John's gospel. John 3, verse 34 says, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. Now you see, do you realize, brothers and sisters, that a judge is a sent man? A judge is a sent man inasmuch as he is sent by and on behalf of the state he represents to execute judgment. And when a judge stands up to make judgment in any nation, why, even in America itself, the judgments that the judge brings forth are not his own views or his own opinions, but are judgments brought down consistent with the principles of the state he represents, the nation he represents. He upholds the judicial authority of the state He's a sent man. He represents the state. But the man of this gospel preeminently will be shown to us as the one who's been sent from God and who therefore speaks forth God's words and God's mind. He represents God's judgments, you see, especially in this gospel. Key word. Oh, and here's another one. Amen. That's the Greek word. How is it normally translated in the English? Amen. It's the word verily in the authorized version. 
verily. Now, let me tell you something interesting. The word amen occurs in every gospel record. But in the gospel of John, well, let me ask you a question. It's not a question, actually, it's a statement. Which means, by the way, you don't need to answer. This phrase, amen, amen. In other words, amen twice. Verily, verily. Amen, amen. Now you'll probably know that whenever a word is doubled in the Hebrew, it's a Hebraism which means it is emphatic. It is doubled for emphasis. Well, here's the number of times that the phrase verily, verily, or amen, amen occurs in the gospel records. Matthew, zero. Mark, zero. Luke, zero. John, 25 times. Do you think that's a key word? Oh, I think so. And you see, I think that the force of the expression, amen, amen, in the Gospel of John, is that here are the solemn pronouncements of the judge. This is the final authoritative decision. Verily, verily, I say unto you. This is the mouth of the judge. This is final, absolutely final. Don't you think that's consistent, you see, with with that spirit and, and that idea? In John chapter 1, each of the Gospels has certain notable features. Unfortunately, we've been unable to spend as much time as we would have liked on those. In the Gospel of Matthew, one of the special features, of course, is it's the Gospel of Speeches. In the Gospel of Mark, which we didn't have time to look at, it's the Gospel preeminently of emotions. In the Gospel of Luke, it's the Gospel of individuals. The priest is going to touch everyone. In the Gospel of John, one of the special features is it's the Gospel of truth. Do you remember what it says in Mark and John 1 without turning it up? And the word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. And then what does it say? And truth. And it's this man in John 8 who's going to stand up and say, which of you convinceth me of sin, and why do you not believe me when I tell you the truth? This is the man who in John 14 will stand up and say, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is the man in John 18 who will say to Pilate, I came forth to witness to the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. You see, there's a special emphasis in this gospel on the idea of truth. Well, in fact, let me give you the, 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 um, the occurrences. The word truth in the Greek, alethes, is found on the following occasions in the gospel. Matthew, it's found five times. Mark, six times. Luke, seven times. How many times do you think in the Gospel of John? And by the way, it's not eight times. Five times in Mark, in Matthew, six times in Mark, seven times in Luke, 56 times in the Gospel of John. Would you say this is the Gospel of truth? Yes. What we want in this Gospel is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because if the judge can't speak truth, what will the witnesses be like? Well, we'd expect that in this gospel, wouldn't we? If this is to be the face of the judge. In the gospel of John, chapter 10, 
amongst the special Old Testament references that are found in this gospel, we have this one in John 10. He says this, verse 30, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. And Jesus answered them and said, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said I'm the Son of God. And he quotes to them Psalm 82. Do you think that was a good reference for the Lord to quote? Well, come and have a look. Psalm 82. By the way, this is the only gospel that makes reference to this episode and certainly the only gospel that... that cites Psalm 82, the Gospel of John alone. Now, the Lord quotes the psalm in response to those who wanted to stone him when he said that I and my father are one. This is what Psalm 82 is about. We believe, by the way, it was written in the days of Hezekiah, written at a time when the judges of the nation were not behaving properly at all. This is what the psalm says. God stands in the congregation of the mighty ones. He judges among the Elohim. Now you see that word Elohim in Psalm 82, the gods, we're told in the book of the law that the judges were called gods. The judges were called gods. Thou shalt not revile the gods, says Exodus 22, and the margin says the judges. Why were the judges called gods? Well, because they were God to the nation. Because they spoke forth God's mind. They brought forth God's judgments. So they were called gods because they represented God. But Psalm 82 says these judges are not standing and executing God's principles at all. The day is coming when God will stand and judge among these Elohim called to represent God but who are not doing so. Verse 2, how long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Judge the poor and fatherless, as the word verse 3 means, it's the same word. Judge the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. And then the psalmist says, as a lamentation, these judges who ought to have represented God, they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods. I gave you that responsibility, says the psalm, and all of you are children of the Most High, but because you have not lived up to the responsibility of judging the righteous judgments of God, verse 7, ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And so the psalm says, Arise, O Elohim, and judge the earth. And this was a cry for the king himself, for Hezekiah, to stand up on behalf of God, to represent God, and bring forth the righteous judgment that the earth so desperately needed at that time. And this psalm is the psalm that Christ will quote in John 10 to explain what he means when he says, I and my Father are one. He truly spoke forth God's mind 
and represented his father's principles, you see. So now, how does the Gospel of John close? Well, the Gospel of John closes in John chapter 21 when Peter says, I go fishing. Do you remember the story? And without even reading John chapter 21, could you tell me, in effect, what happens in this chapter? Tell me what happens. Would someone like to say? Yes? Peter? Yes, Peter is reconciled to Christ. Now, let's expand on that a little. As they all sit on the beach on this occasion... What type of scene is this on the shore of the lake? Who is doing what to whom? And the answer is that the last scene of John's Gospel will be the trial scene. Won't Peter be on trial? Won't the Lord be the judge? Won't the disciples be the witness? And even though a reconciliation will take place, Peter felt by the end of that episode that he had most certainly been on trial and the gospel will close with a trial scene. And by the way, the promise later on of the coming of Christ again. You see, see in, the, in um, John 21, verse uh, 21, Peter says to him, Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? The apostle John. And Jesus says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Then went, this, then went this saying abroad among the brethren that that disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him he shall not die, but that if I will that he tarry till I come. Do you know what the coming is in John chapter 21? I come. That's AD 70. John lived beyond AD 70. Peter didn't. Peter died before AD 70. John lived beyond it. He saw the coming of Christ. For what purpose, brothers and sisters, did the Lord come in AD 70? To judge his people. But that's not the commission to the disciples in this gospel. Where's the commission to the disciples? Ah, that's one chapter back in John chapter 20. Remember how we've said that there's a commission to the disciples in each of the gospel records. In Matthew's gospel... It's in Galilee, and the king sends forth his ambassadors. In Mark's gospel, it's as they sit at meat in Jerusalem, and he upbraids them and sends them forth, as a master sends forth his servants. In Luke's gospel, it's out at Bethany, is it not, when he lifts up his hands and blesses them. Well, here's the commission of John's gospel in John chapter 20 and verse 19. Then the same day... At evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. He reassured them because they were frightened. And well, they might be frightened because, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed, the doors were locked and somehow Christ got through them. How does a man pass through locked doors? Well, we're not told how he did it, brothers and sisters, but have you ever thought about what the symbolism might be? 
in John 20, verse 19. See, I think the lesson is this, that the man that can pass through locked doors is the man that can penetrate locked thoughts. There is no door that is shut to this man who is the judge of all. All the doors of our mind are open to him. We cannot lock them to keep this one out. And Jesus stood in the midst, says the record, and verse 20 says, And when he'd so said, Peace be unto you, he showed them his hands and his side. And what the disciples saw in the wounded Christ was a man who would never compromise his personal integrity, even under pain of death. And now he says this, verse 21. Just look at what he says. Jesus said to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so I send you. Now, Rotherham translates that phrase in verse 21. It's only just slightly different. But then said Jesus to them, Just as my Father sent me forth, I also send you. So the question is, John 20 verse 21, how and in what capacity was, John, was Jesus rather sent forth in this gospel? And the answer is, well, he's sent forth as God's man, isn't he? He's sent forth as God's mouthpiece to speak God's words. He's sent forth as God's man to bring forth God's judgments. As God sent me forth, says Jesus, so now I send you. And I think what we're being told in this particular commission of John's gospel is that the judge now is calling his men to the bench to endow them with the gift of insight so that they can take up his responsibility of judgment as the face of the eagle. And I'll tell you why I think that. Verse 22. It says this. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. In fact, he breathed strongly, is says the Greek. It's the same word, by the way, in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 2 verse 7, when God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. And now the Lord breathes upon his community that they might receive something. Well, what was he breathing upon them for? Well, the verse says... He said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. By the way, the, the definite article is not there on this occasion. It should just be translated, Receive ye Holy Spirit. Now, just stop and think about this for a moment. The twelve and the seventy already have the Holy Spirit. Well before John chapter 20. They've already got the Holy Spirit. So when the Lord says, receive Holy Spirit, did he mean something additional to what they already had? And was this Holy Spirit going to be different to the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost yet to come in Acts chapter 2? And I think the answer to both those questions is yes. I think what the Lord was going to give them on this occasion was something different to the Spirit they already had. 
and would not be the same as the outpouring of the Spirit in Pentecost yet to come. Ask yourself this question on this occasion in verse 22. Why did the Lord need to breathe on them so that they might receive Spirit? And you see, I think the answer is that the Lord breathed on them on this occasion, not so much as to indicate that they were to receive the Spirit, as that they were to receive His Spirit. He breathed on them and said, Receive ye Spirit. And I think that the particular spirit that, we, that, 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 that the Lord had in mind here was the spirit of, well, as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 10 says, there was a spirit called the discerning of spirits, the gift of judgment. The spirit gift of discerning judgment. He breathed upon them and said, as my father sent me, so now I send you. And he breathed on them and said, receive this spirit, the spirit that I exhibit in this particular record, the spirit of judgment. And by the way, the proof that that's correct is the next verse, verse 23, because this is what the Lord says. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto you unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. You know that those terms in verse 23 are judicial terms. Only a judge can remit sin. And the Sanhedrin had such judicial terms. In the legislative sphere, they had the words to bind or to loose a matter. But in the judicial sphere, they had the word zakai, which meant to pronounce innocent, or pater, which meant to pronounce liable or guilty. The Sanhedrin could remit or not remit, depending on how they judged. And I think that what the Lord is saying to his disciples on this occasion is he is charging them with the responsibility to act as his representatives in the work of judgment, not to the world at large, but to his ecclesia, to his people, to exercise the spirit of discerning judgment within the confines of the ecclesia of God. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. It's sort of like these words in another place. And you might like, by the way, to try and guess which gospel these words come from. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they ask, it shall be done for them of my Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And I think that what we're being told in the Gospels is not so much that if the disciples made a decision that God would be bound to acknowledge it, Rather, instead, on the other side, that if they acted in accordance with the divine mind and the divine word, then heaven would endorse their judgments. And it's this responsibility of judgment that the Lord is now commissioning under his disciples on the occasion of John chapter 20. This is the commission of this gospel. Go forth and show now this spirit. So the commission in John is the judge delegating judicial authority to his representatives to show the spirit of discernment in the ecclesia. I think it's peculiar. 
and special to this gospel. As, by the way, are all the commissions of the four gospels. So what's our summary then for today's face? The face of the eagle in John is the face of the perfect judge. John depicts Christ from the standpoint of his spiritual insight and divine judgment, especially and uniquely in this record. He will be seen in that way. And our summary phrase, therefore, remember in Matthew that mercy which rules, in Mark that humility which serves, in Luke that compassion which saves, here now in the Gospel of John, that spirit which discerns. All, brothers and sisters, that we might have those eyes in all that we see and do. And God willing, we shall, as we shall see in another study. This morning you might have noticed that our chairman gave a slightly different title to what's in your handbook. In the handbook it said four faces and four commissions. But in fact what we've done in the course of our studies is looked at the commission or the close of each gospel record as part of our consideration of that face. So this morning what we hope to do instead is to look at the four faces and the four writers of those four faces. I believe that in the providence of God, Almighty God selected each man that was to pen, to paint, the particular portrait of Christ, and that that man was especially suited and changed that they might paint that face appropriately in the gospel that they would write. Just before I get on to those, though, I just want to mention a paradox with regard to the faces of the cherubim in the Gospels. You may not have noticed this, but in fact there's a paradox to the faces. You see, what we have in the Gospel of Matthew is not just a lion, but a friendly lion. And the friendly lion will answer to the face of the merciful king, which is the type of king portrayed in this gospel record. And in the gospel of Mark, we don't just have an ox. We've got a gentle ox. And the gentle ox will answer to the face of the caring servant that will particularly be painted in the portrait of Mark's gospel. In the gospel of Luke, we don't just have a man. We have a weeping man. And the weeping man of Luke's gospel will answer to the sympathetic priest that will especially be drawn to our, to, drawn to our attention in the face of the gospel of Luke. 
And lastly, and perhaps strangely, in the Gospel of John, we're going to see a smiling eagle. And the smiling eagle is going to answer to the face of the loving judge, which John is going to paint for us in his Gospel record. There's a paradox, you see, to each of the faces. Well, let's have a look at the writers, shall we, then, and see if we can see how, how appropriate it was that this particular man on each occasion was selected in the providence of God to pen his gospel portrait. So what do we know about Matthew then? Well, if you come to the gospel of Matthew in chapter 10, we're told this in the list of the apostles. The, the record says this, Matthew chapter 10. And reading from verse 2, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And the interesting thing in the list of the twelve apostles in Matthew 10, brothers and sisters, is that only one man has his occupation recorded. And that's Matthew the publican. Now you see, publicans were an interesting group of people, were they not? In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 11, publicans are compared to sinners. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 17, publicans are, are compared to heathens. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, publicans are compared to harlots. They weren't exactly the most popular species on earth. And particularly not in the Jewish congregation. Jewish people are rather careful with their money. And the thought of having to pay tax over to other people was never a popular idea, but Matthew was one of the worst type of tax collectors. Actually, there were two different types, you know, in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, two different types of publicanus. The first was the Gabbai, who really collected the local Jewish statutory taxes. Only 1% income tax, which sounds quite good, but... There were other taxes. There was a 0.30% poll tax. There was a 10% grain tax. There was a tax of 5% on anything else produced out of the land. And the Gabai collected the statutory taxes. But there was a second group of tax collectors called the Mokes. And the Mokes collected custom tax. They collected import and export taxes. And they also collected road user charges. The Romans had quite advanced ideas of taxation. And the interesting thing about the Mokes, that second class, and those taxes range from 2.5% to 12.5%, is that the Mokes worked directly for Rome. And Matthew was a Mokes. Matthew the publican worked for Rome. He collected the taxes on behalf of Rome. And when the decree came forth from the Caesar of Rome that all the world should be either enrolled or taxed, the Caesar knew what he wanted. 
And that tax demand would come filtering down through the various stages until it got to the local province of Judea and of Palestine, and it was up to the Mokkes to collect that, plus add their margin. You see, this man, Matthew, was joined to Caesar. He served the king of Rome. And that's what his other name means, isn't it? Levi, joined. He was joined to Caesar's employee. He began service in Rome or to Rome and to the master of ambition. Matthew had never known a king who manifested mercy. Matthew collected tax on behalf of a Caesar. And he collected that tax without compromise, without discount, and without mercy. He was ruthlessly efficient in serving his king. But Matthew, of all men, was going to come into a contact with come into contact with a king of an altogether different sort that would change his life. Do you know it's in Matthew chapter seventeen, interestingly enough, and only in the Gospel of Matthew that We read this story, it's a tax story, and only in this gospel. In Matthew 17, in verse 24, the record says, And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money, these are the temple taxes, came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And he said, Yes. When he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon? Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? Peter says unto him, well, why of strangers? Jesus says unto him, well, then aren't the children free? And, of course, the very point of the Lord's argument was that tax was taken of strangers, not the children of the kingdom. But Jesus was more than a child of the kingdom. He was the royal son of the kingdom. Why? The king designate himself. You don't take taxes of the king. But this man was merciful and had an altogether different spirit. And so he says, this king designate in verse 27, Notwithstanding, lest we should offend them, go thou to the sea, cast and hook, take up the fish that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. And the Lord's attitude to tax... And even the paying of tribute was quite different to the spirit that Matthew had known in serving his previous employer, king. And isn't it in Matthew chapter 22 that it's not unique to Matthew, but we're not surprised to find it in Matthew's gospel. Do you remember the story of of when the Herodians came to Jesus and said in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 22, Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God. And of course, on the coin, brothers and sisters, was both the name... And the face of Caesar, the name and the face. So Christ says, 
Well, if the face on this coin is Caesar's and his name is on it, then that must belong to him. So pay that tax to him. But of course you realize the force of Matthew chapter 22 because you see in other parts of the scriptural record we're told, are we not, brothers and sisters, that we ourselves are made in the image of God and have his name named upon us. And the point of the Lord's teaching was, give the coin to Caesar. But you yourselves have the image of God stamped upon you and his name written upon you. So therefore you belong to God. So pay God's tax to him in loyal service of your life. And Matthew learned of a completely different type of tax, payable to a different type of king. You know, in Matthew chapter 9, we have the, actually in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we have the story of, of a collection of the miracles of Christ. There's a whole cascade of them in these two chapters. There's the miracle of the leper in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 1. There's the miracle of Peter's mother's wife in chapter 8 and verse 14. There's the miracle of the storm on the sea in chapter 8 and verse 23. There's the miracle of the healing of, of the man of the Gergesenes in chapter 8 and verse 28. There's the miracle of the palsied man in chapter 9 and verse 1. There's going to be the miracle of the ruler in chapter 9 and verse 18. Of the woman diseased with blood in verse 20. Of two blind men in verse 27. Of a dumb man in verse 32. There's a whole cascade of miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And right in the middle of those miracles... We have this story, brothers and sisters, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, when the record says, and by the way, just before I start this, I might just mention that, you see, I believe that each gospel writer was not only selected by the Father to write the gospel portrait that he did, but that included in his gospel is a signature a particular thing inserted in the gospel record that really is Matthew's way of signing off his gospel. Well, here's Matthew's signature. It's this record, verse 9. As Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And Matthew's story is that here in the middle of all the miracles of Christ, he says the greatest miracle of all, as far as, I've con as far as I'm concerned, is the miracle of Christ's mercy in calling me a hated publican to the truth. And the shadow of Messiah fell athwart the tax desk. And Matthew, in service to the king of Rome, decided to join the service of the king of Israel. And he arose and followed him. 
And verse 10 says, It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Oh, by the way, do you see what it says in verse 10? It came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house. But the other gospel records say it's Matthew's house, his own house. This was Matthew's farewell feast. He invited all the publicans because he was going to say goodbye to them. It's in this place, on this occasion, Matthew wasn't just leaving his occupation. He was renouncing his allegiance to one king and proclaiming loyalty to another. He was going to celebrate that he was leaving all of Caesar's world behind to join the service of the king of mercy. And isn't it remarkable that While they held the feast in Matthew's own house, at the very time, the Pharisees, verse 11, came and said to the disciples of Jesus, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when Matthew had learned the principle of mercy, he was asked by Almighty God to write the gospel of the merciful king and paint the portrait of the cherub lion in the face of Christ. He was changed by contact with the Lord. So what about Mark then? Well, if you come to Acts chapter 13, we're told this concerning Mark. In the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 13, the the record says this. It's at the beginning of the first missionary journey. We're told that when Paul and Barnabas had been separated, well, verse 2 says, Acts 13, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. The work. Notice that key word, by the way, because this is the gospel now of the face of the ox. The face of labor and service of work in the truth. And so Barnabas and Saul are separated for the work of the truth. And it says in verse 5 that when they got to Cyprus, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John to their minister, says the record. John, whose surname was Mark. So John was with them as a minister. The word is huprites, which means an attendant or an assistant. John Mark was there to help Paul and Barnabas in the work of the service of their preaching. But verse 13 says this. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. John left them. John left the work. John left his role as a servant or a minister. We're not told why, but if you come to chapter 15, clearly there was a problem here with regard to Mark's development of thinking at this stage. Because in Acts chapter 15, it says this, verse 37. When they decided to make another missionary journey, verse 37 says, Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. 
But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Ah, so the very problem that Mark had was he didn't understand the spirit of service. He did not have a a proper commitment to the service of the truth. He let them down. So time was going to be needed to mature Mark's faith. Just as Matthew's character had to be changed, so did Mark's. And there was nothing personal in it, by the way, when Paul said that he didn't want to take him. It it wasn't anything personal towards Mark. It was simply his lack of maturity in dedicated service. Well, the lovely thing about the story of Mark, brothers and sisters, which we must needs abbreviate this morning, is that his faith clearly did mature. And let me just give you two references that we won't turn up, but you might like to take a note of. The first is in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10, where it says, verses 10 and 11, when it says, Marcus, my fellow worker unto the kingdom. Marcus, my fellow worker unto the kingdom, says the Apostle Paul. And again in Philemon, verse 24, he calls Mark, my fellow laborer. Do you notice those two phrases? My fellow worker, my fellow laborer. Why, those are the words of service, aren't they? And now I come to the last chapter of the last epistle that the Apostle Paul ever wrote, which is, of course, the second of Timothy. If you come to the second of Timothy in chapter 4, we're told this. Paul's imprisonment. He says this in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. And then he says, Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me. For the ministry, for the service. He's profitable to me for the service. So you see, Mark had developed now to the point where he understood the true spirit of service in the truth. He's profitable for the ministry, says Paul. Bring him along. Especially remember to bring Mark. And now come to Mark's signature in the gospel. Where's Mark's signature in his gospel? Well, I think it's probably in Mark chapter 14. And the story of a certain moment in the garden of Gethsemane. And you'll remember that the record says in Mark 14. When this band of soldiers and lanterns and swords and torches all came to take Christ in the garden. It says of his disciples in verse 50, And they all forsook him and fled. 
And then Mark's gospel records a peculiar account that only Mark records when it says in verse 51, And there followed him a certain young man having a linen cloth cast about his naked body, and the young men laid hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Do you know, brothers and sisters, I think that was John Mark. We're told in the book of Acts that the brethren used to meet in those days in the house of John Mark's mother, says Acts chapter 12. One suspects that the upper room might have been in that house. And that in fact what happened was that after the feast, Judas having already left, that John Mark went to bed. And that lying in his bed as a young man, there suddenly came a knock at the door. And in the doorway below, Mark, as he looked out the window, could see Judas and all of those that were gathered that they might take Christ. And Mark thought, I must warn the Lord. So he jumps out of bed, wraps a linen cloth about him, and races by a different route to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew the Lord was wont to go, that he might warn Christ, but he got there too late. By the time he arrived, the soldiers were already there. And verse 51 says, There followed a certain young man having a linen cloth, and when the young men laid hold on him, he also forsook the Lord and fled. I think that was John Mark, you see, brothers and sisters. And the story is that John Mark fled because he had not yet learned the spirit of faithful service at the time this moment happened in his life. This is his salute to Christ that as yet he did not understand. And the reason, brothers and sisters, why Mark did not yet know faithful servant is because he didn't care enough. He didn't care enough about Christ. But he would learn. And when he had learned, and when he had become profitable for the ministry, God said to Mark, and now I'd like you to write the gospel of the caring servant and paint the portrait of the ox concerning my son. Oh, yes, I think the Lord chose the right man, brothers and sisters, don't you? To paint that portrait. So what do we know about Luke then? And the gospel of the face of the man. Well, if you come to Colossians chapter 4, we're told this concerning Luke. It's something that we all know, but I wonder if you know quite as much as you think you do. In Colossians chapter 4, we're told this. It says, in Colossians 4 and verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician. Ah, so Luke was a doctor. Luke was a doctor. And you see, that made him especially suited for the particular portrait that he would paint of our Lord Jesus Christ, would it not? For this reason, brothers and sisters, and I just want you to think about the suitability of Luke's capacity as a doctor to paint the portrait of the weeping man. Because you see, a doctor was to disease what a priest was to sin. The one deals in physical weakness. The other deals in spiritual infirmity. The one has patience to heal. 
The other has sinners to save. But they're of the same spirit, are they not? You see, both doctors and priests were channels of healing. They're both focused on the deliverance of those that they minister among. And in fact, in the book of the law, it came to the climax where leprosy was treated not by doctors, but by coming to the priest. And Luke's training as a doctor made him especially suitable for this particular work that he would have of painting this portrait. But I think he was more than a doctor. He was a particular type of doctor. Because you see what Colossians says. It says verse 10, Marcus, sister's son, Verse 11, and Jesus who is called justice, and, and then it says, who are, who are, these ones, are of the circumcision. And then it says, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom. And having said that, he then goes on to mention Epaphras in verse 12, Luke in verse 14, Nymphus in verse 15, Archippus in verse 17, who clearly also assisted Paul, are they not also fellow workers? What does the Lord, what does Paul mean in verse 11 when he says, these only are my fellow workers? Well, you see, I think the answer is that the fellow workers that he's enumerated, as verse 11 says, are those of the circumcision. But Luke is mentioned later in the, in the chapter as being one of those who labored with the apostle who clearly was not of the circumcision, but of the Gentiles. So he wasn't just a doctor, he was a Gentile doctor. And in fact, I'm going to suggest to you, and unfortunately I haven't got the time to really develop this theme this morning, but I think he was more than a Gentile doctor. I think quite possibly that Luke was a Samaritan doctor. And I say so for two key reasons. The first is that when we come to the Gospel of Luke, we have this strange feature, especially if Luke was a Gentile, that here is a writer who has intimate knowledge of the Jewish law and quotes extensively from the Septuagint version. A strange thing were Luke to be completely a Gentile. But the Samaritans, you see, had a special Pentateuch of their own, the Samaritan Pentateuch, that was extremely similar to the Septuagint translation. And in this gospel, the gospel of Luke, we will find the most extensive references to the Septuagint translation of the gospel writers. I think this man already understood these things because he came not from a Gentile background, but from a Samaritan one. He already knew the law of Moses. And the second thing is that do you know that apart from Christ's first work with the Samaritans, recorded in John chapter 4, Every single thing we know about contact with the Samaritans as a people, every single thing is recorded by Luke and only by Luke. Every other moment of contact, every other episode involving Samaritans is chronicled by Luke alone. I think Luke was a Samaritan, a person despised. Now do you know the one thing by training that Luke lacked was this. As a doctor, however careful he might be with and for his patients, he would be taught as a medical practitioner to be professionally 
detached. Never become emotionally involved in the patient you're healing. But I believe that this man came into contact with Christ who cared for him, a Gentile. And he learned the one thing that his training had not taught him. He saw the face of a compassionate man who cared beyond all bounds that he'd ever seen before for those that he came to labor among. And I think when Luke saw the face of that man, I think that Luke met Christ, by the way. I think that Luke knew Christ. And I think he was touched by him. And he was changed so that he might write, write the story of this particular gospel record. Having known Christ. Do you know where the signature is in Luke's gospel? I think it's in Luke chapter 10. There's a parable in Luke chapter 10. This particular parable is only found in Luke's gospel. Only Luke writes this special story that clearly came from the mouth of the Lord. And it's the story of a wounded man. And the record says in Luke chapter 10, and just notice what it does say, by the way, it says in verse 31 that a certain priest came down and passed by on the other side. Verse 32, and likewise, a Levite that looked and passed by on the other side. And one of the things of the parable of the Good Samaritan, brothers and sisters, will be that the people who should have shown compassion, the priest and the Levite, never did so. And this gospel will present instead the story of the true priest who does show compassion. But it's not a priest in Luke 10. It says, strangely, in verse 33, a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds and poured in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and took him to an inn and took care of him. He had compassion, verse 33, and he showed care, verse 34. But you know what's really interesting about the parable of the Good Samaritan, brothers and sisters? It's this. Verse 34. What man would be traveling on the road who, when coming across such an one grievously wounded, would be able to bring bandages and ointments out of his bag But a doctor. See, I think the Good Samaritan was a doctor. And I wonder whether this parable was related to the life of Luke himself, who had met the Lord. And when Luke had met the Lord, brothers and sisters, and been changed by him, he was asked to write the gospel of the sympathetic priest who cared so much for others and who always had the resources there that he might heal them. 
oh yes, I, I think God chose the right man to write the gospel, did he not? So what do we know then about the man John? Well, if you come to Mark chapter 3, we're, we're told this concerning John the Apostle. In Mark chapter 3, it says this at the Mark record of the choosing of the apostles. It says in verse 16 of Mark 3, Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the son, sons of thunder. Boanerges is the Greek form of two Hebrew words, ben ragaz. Ben means son, and ragaz means in the Hebrew literally to quiver with any violent emotion, either rage or grief or anger, wrath, joy, whatever it was, it means to quiver with violent emotion. John was an intense man. Yeah, that was his problem. John was a very intense man in his feelings, and he felt very passionately about our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you three illustrations out of the life of John. The first one is in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, we're told this. In verse 38, the record says of Mark 9, John answered him saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him, because he followeth not us. And Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. He that's not against us is on our part. John, do not forbid. And you see, what happens in Mark chapter 9 is that John is rebuked for short-sighted aggressiveness because he was anxious to exclude others who lacked the commitment to follow Christ. Such was the intensity of his feelings for his Lord. And now come to Luke chapter 9. Here's a second episode that shows the characteristic of John, the son of thunder. John Boanerges. Here he is, Luke chapter 9. Verse 51 says, It came to pass that when Jesus should be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And you see, in Luke chapter 9, John is rebuked for vindictive intolerance. Because he was zealous to exclude others who lacked the respect to honor Christ. He was happy to blast them off the face of the earth. That's not the spirit, says Jesus. And now I come back to Mark chapter 10. One final episode that shows the character of the man that would be called to write the gospel of the smiling eagle. 
in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldst do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And the Lord, with commendable caution, said, um, What would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. And Jesus says, You do not know what you ask. And in the intensity of John's passion to be associated with Christ, on this occasion he is rebuked for thoughtless ambition because he was prepared to exclude others who lacked the desire to be with Christ like he did. Oh, he's a strong man, this one, isn't he, brothers and sisters? But now this man is going to come face to face with the most surprising judge that he had ever seen. Come and have a look at the words of John chapter 5 and see the spirit of the judge whose portrait is penned for us in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, It says this in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life. And the remarkable thing about this particular gospel is that the objectives of the ju- the objective of the judge's words are not that he might condemn to death, but that he might bring to life. All they had to do was believe the words of the judge. If they believed him, they could live. If they did not believe him, they would die, but they would judge themselves. But you see, the drama of the Gospel of John, brothers and sisters, the tremendous feature of this Gospel is that he was the only judge that could sit before them and bring in a verdict of acquittal to eternal life. The whole desire of this judge was not to bring down the sentence of death but the sentence of life for all if they would just believe his words because his words were the words of God. John chapter 20. Do you remember at the end of the miracles before the postscript to the gospel? At the very end of John chapter 20, the record says, see, this is the spirit of the man of this gospel. John 20 verse 30 says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, ye might have life through his name. And you see, this was the judge who actually wanted to acquit them and not condemn them. Do you know that love is a key word in the Gospel of John? 
the Gospel of the Judge has the word love as a key word. 47 times in this Gospel, agape and philia are used, compared to 35 combined in the other Gospels. It's a key idea, and this is what John was going to have to learn, you see, as he had contact with Christ. In the words of a hymn, Here where the sun of thunder learns The thought that breathes and word that burns Here where on eagle wings we move with him Whose last best creed is love. And that's the thing that John had to learn, you see. And finally he came face to face in his own life with the loving judge. You know the signature of John's gospel, brothers and sisters? Come and have a look at John chapter 13. Time does not permit us to actually follow the sequence through, but if I mention them, you'll no doubt find them. We'll just look at the beginning and the end of the sequence. In John 13, in verse 21... Jesus was troubled in spirit and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Of course, that's John himself, isn't it, brothers and sisters? This man who wanted to exclude all else in his passion and zeal for Christ finally learnt that the Lord loved him. And do you know what the Lord, do you know what John saw on the occasion of this one remarkable night, brothers and sisters? He leaned on the bosom of Christ and he said to Christ, he whispered to Christ, who is it, Lord? And Jesus said to John alone, it's the one I give the sop to. And John watched with fascinated eye as Jesus gave the sop to Judas and loved him. And John would see this night that the Lord who loved Judas also found time to answer the question of Thomas and the question of Philip and the question of Judas who was not Iscariot and to heal Malchus's ear and to look kindly upon Peter. And finally in John chapter 19 as he draws near to the cross, the record's going to tell us in John 19 and verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And he said to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. And at the very point, brothers and sisters, almost of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, he looked out and saw his mother that night and showed love for her and saw John. And there's no pride, brothers and sisters, in John's gospel when he calls himself, for this is his signature, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was actually the turning point in his life. Because he'd come face to face with the loving judge, he who would gladly have excluded others, and he saw a man, he found a man, he understood a man who never excluded anyone in all his work.
And when John had come face to face with that man, Almighty God said to him, And now I want you to write the Gospel of the Loving Judge and paint the portrait of the eagle face of the cherubim in my son. Oh, I think these men, brothers and sisters, were not only chosen of God and not only suited to write their gospel portraits, but were changed in the process, were they not? And if they could be changed, brothers and sisters, so surely must we, when we look upon the faces. But then that, brothers and sisters, is our story for tomorrow. This is day six of the 2006 Idlewild Bible School. Our first period teacher is Brother Roger Lewis. His general topic is the four faces of Christ in the Gospels. Today's topic is the faces and the kingdom. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good morning for the last time, brothers and sisters. So now we've established what the faces are, what the faces represent. And this morning we're going to take some exhortations from the faces as they might apply to ourselves and our own daily life. And then we're going to move forward to the kingdom age and see what happens to the cherubic faces as time moves on in the Father's purpose. And just before we begin to comment on the faces as they might apply to us, I just wanted to say that with regard to the Gospels, it's important to understand that we will find glimpses of all the faces in all the Gospels. You see, when the cherubim advanced towards Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1, one face came to the forefront as it proceeded towards him. But although that face was the dominant face, he could see the others, one on the left, one on the right, and one behind as the cherubim moved towards him. And it wouldn't matter, brothers and sisters, from what side you approached the cherubim, there would always be a dominant face, but the others would be there, and I think so it is in the Gospels. And the reason why I mention that is because I don't want anyone going home now and trying to find only the face of the lion and every single verse of the Gospel of Matthew because it's not true. The Lord is all the faces and he's in all the Gospels. What we're saying is there is a dominant face in each Gospel. But we will see glimpses of other things as well. Do you remember, for example, how that in the opening of the book of Luke, we're told at the time of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, of his mother Mary, of the house of David, that a son is born. 
who shall be given the throne of his father David, and who shall reign over Jacob and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. And these are kingly things, but they're found in the gospel of the face of the man. And is it not in the gospel of Luke, and sorry, John in chapter 13, that our Lord takes a towel and kneels before his disciples, having girded himself and washes their feet in the spirit of service? But this in the gospel of the face of the judge. So I think there are glimpses of all the faces in all the gospels, but that each gospel has a dominant face, which is the side of the cherubim that we are looking upon as we come to Christ. So let's take some lessons, shall we, from the gospel records now that we've established what the faces are. And I'm just going to give you two exhortations out of each of these faces by way of illustration of how we should go about now applying the principles and the lessons from the faces we've seen. Well, here's two from Matthew, the face of the lion. Here's the first thing. What did the Lord do in his commission in this gospel as he sent forth his men? He sent them forth to teach all men to observe the commandments of the king, whatsoever I teach you. So I think one of the lessons we learn from the face of Matthew is learning to live the commandments of the king. Have we ever thought, brothers and sisters, that we are the king's ambassadors, the king's ambassadors? Do we realize the greatness of that task and that the king has asked us to go forth and teach all nations his commandments? Well, how can we teach them the commandments of the king, brothers and sisters, if we don't know his commandments? So do we know them? Have we read them? Do we understand them? Do you know there are at least three places in the documents of ecclesial life where I can recall we have the commandments of Christ. The commandments of Christ are in many ecclesial constitutions. The commandments of Christ are in those little booklets of the Bible companion that so many of us have had over the years. There's a copy of the commandments of Christ in the ecclesial guide that Brother Robert Roberts wrote, which I still think is such a tremendously valuable document for ecclesial conduct. The commandments of Christ. And depending on which version you look at, there's about either 50 or 100 such commandments. So if we've never looked at the commandments of, of Christ before, then maybe that's a good thing for us to do. So how, how might we go about learning the commandments of the king? Well, why don't we go to the commandments of Christ and write the first one out on a piece of paper? But in fact, write them out three times. The first commandment on three pieces of paper. And you put the first piece of paper... On the inside of your bedroom door, so that the first thing you notice as you come out in the morning is the commandment of the king. And then you put another one over the head of your bed, so the last thing you see as you come to bed that night is the commandment of the king. And then you put another one, of course, on the mirror in the bathroom. So that when you come into the bathroom, you no longer gaze simply upon your own face, but why? Upon the face of the king. You might as well, other than look at yourself every day. 
And if we did that for one week, brothers and sisters, and read that commandment every time we got up, every time we went to the bathroom, every time we come home to go to bed that night, we will begin to learn the commandment of the king. And at the end of that week, we take it down. We write a second one. We don't forget the first, but we begin to learn the second. And we gradually learn the commandments of the king. Shouldn't we do that if we're the king's ambassadors? And you notice what the Lord did say, by the way, in the gospel. He didn't say, teach them the commandments. He said, teach them to observe the commandments. How can we teach other people to observe the commandments of the king if we do not know them ourselves? So there's a lesson, isn't there, from the face of the lion. And here's another one. Do you know that one of the key themes in the Gospel of Matthew, which we didn't have time to explore, is the greatness of mercy. That the greatness of a king is measured by the mercy that he shows to those people least able to plead his care. You'll remember that a key phrase in the Gospel of Matthew is the son of David. You know, the phrase son of David in the book of Matthew is not just there to prove that Jesus is of David's royal line. He's the son of David because he shows the same merciful spirit of David. And mercy is one of the qualities of kingship. Well, we need to learn how to practice true mercy. We need to understand how mercy rejoices against judgment. We need to understand how mercy and truth might meet together. We need to understand how mercy might be practiced by the king himself, that mercy is responsible, that mercy is not offered without discrimination, that mercy is still related to the purpose of the king. So perhaps we could write down three things in daily life where we could be more merciful ourselves. And if we're not sure about mercy and quite where it should start or where it should stop or how it should be governed, then maybe a very good study would be how the king himself shows mercy in the gospel of the king, to study the mercy of the king in this gospel so that we might learn to practice it ourselves. So what about the face of the ox then? Well, I think that one of the lessons that we must learn from the face of the ox in the Gospel of Mark is learning to serve with zeal. Not just to serve, brothers and sisters, but to serve with zeal. So let me ask you whether you can write down three specific labors that you perform in the service of the truth in your ecclesia. Three specific things that you contribute in the service of the truth in your ecclesia. See, it's not just enough to do things. We need to do it with zeal. And one of the paradoxes of ecclesial life is that even when ecclesias grow, somehow the larger the ecclesia, the cry still goes out that there's not enough people to do things. Because we haven't learned the face of the ox and learn to serve with zeal. If we can't think of those things that we contribute in ecclesial life, then it's time we did, brothers and sisters. I think that one of the things we all need to do as we become baptized and settle down to spiritual growth is, well, what do I do for the service of the truth? And by the way, attending the meeting is something we all do. But we must serve beyond that. Learning to serve with zeal. Remember the spirit of the servant who, once he begins his labors in this gospel, will never stop 
He runs endlessly like an ox, straining at the leash, straining that he might perform his service. And here's another lesson from the face of the ox is learning to give an offering. You see, service in the truth is a sacrifice. This is not about the zeal of our service, but about the extent of our service. It's about how far will we go in the matters of the service of the truth. Do you know, brothers and sisters, in all the ecclesial world, there are exhortations that have not been properly prepared. There are organists who have not practiced the hymns and never thought about a voluntary that will best bring the meeting to a close. There are suppers that have not been properly made ready. There are doorkeepers who've forgotten to arrive on time and open the hall or have forgotten afterwards and left and left someone else to perform their job. There are lectures that are not convincing because they haven't been prepared. There are readings where clearly the brother has never given time because he hasn't given the sense in the reading that he's given. There are things that have not been done properly in the truth, brothers and sisters, because they were not given as whole burnt offerings we need to be consumed by our labors in the truth. That's the face of the ox. And that what we give, we give as a sacrifice to our Father in loving response to all that he's done for us. Oh yes, I think there's lessons we can learn from the face of the perfect servant, is there not? So what about the face of the man in the Gospel of Luke. Well, here's a couple of lessons. Here's an obvious one. Learning to pray for others. You see, the famous prayer of the priest is that he prays for others. He walks into the house of God with all the names of the tribes engraven on his heart, nor shall the lowliest saint complain that he hath lost his part. And when the priest lifted up his voice, he prayed on behalf of others. He offered intercessory prayers. Do you know, brothers and sisters, we're so desperately selfish in our lives. We live in a world that causes us to think constantly about ourselves. But the spirit of the priest is care for others. There are so many intercessory prayers that we can and should offer. We pray for those in sadness. We pray for those in loneliness. We pray for those in sickness. We pray for those in weakness. We pray for those who grieve. We might even pray for those who laugh. We pray for those who are in authority. We pray for shepherds. We pray for those who preach. We pray for those who go abroad to other places. We pray for the ecclesia. We pray for Israel. Is there any lack of intercessory prayers that we might offer? So let's begin, brothers and sisters, to take up the spirit of the priest and to offer prayers on behalf of others. And do you know where it starts? Do you know where it begins? We must not pray general prayers. We must make them as specific as possible. So we begin with our ecclesial list and we pray for people by name. It must be for that brother there who has suffered loss and for that sister there who now grieves. By name, we ought to pray for them and take up the spirit of the priest. Every day, 
let us try to think of someone by name and include them in our prayers. And here's another lesson from this particular gospel face, and that's learning to offer hospitality. You see, remember that the strange thing about the priest in this gospel is that he loves to eat meals with everyone. Because you see, to the Jew, eating a meal was an act of fellowship. And in this particular gospel, the priest, who's not after the order of Levi, is he? He's after the order of Melchizedek, is glad to share the common daily meal with everyone that he might offer spiritual sustenance at their table, learning to offer hospitality So can you think of three families in your ecclesia that you've never invited into your house for the last 12 months? Could you think of those? Three families or three people in your ecclesia that you've never invited into your house in the last 12 months. The last 12 months, brothers and sisters, and they've never been to your place. Well, I'll give you just 30 seconds to write those names down on a piece of paper, and I'm going to tell you to do something with them. If you've got a piece of paper, just pause for a moment. Maybe you might only think of one name, but think of that name and write it on a piece of paper, because I'm going to ask you to do something with that piece of paper. So 30 seconds. Someone in the ecclesia who hasn't been to your place, your house, for a meal of hospitality for some considerable time. And when you've written that name down, I'd like you to just quietly fold that little piece of paper up and put it in the gospel of Luke. And at chapter 5, the Gospel of Luke, and chapter 5. Now, by the way, there's a very good reason, in case you're thinking, I wonder why he's asking us to do that. Well, it's because of what I'm next going to say. Because, you see, when we come to fulfill this principle, one thing I should just uh, let you know is, so who do we invite now to our homes to offer hospitality to? And the answer is, well, not our families. We'll do that anyway. And not our friends. That's easy to invite our family and friends. That's not especially who we're talking about here. It's the others in the meeting. We should invite the quiet. We should invite the single. We should invite the strange. We should invite the private. We should invite the prickly. We should invite the awkward. We should invite the shy. We should invite those who may be unable to repay our hospitality. And the reason why I've asked you to put it where you have, brothers and sisters, is if you all go home and invite someone this Sunday to your home, they'll wonder whether they're the shy or the awkward or the prickly one. 
But if we wait a few weeks into the middle of September, which is when you'll suddenly do the reading of Luke chapter 5, you'll think, oh, that's right, I was supposed to invite someone to home, and, and the Bible school will have passed, and now you can invite someone at your leisure. And of course, what will prompt your memory is that you've now begun your readings in the gospel of the face of the priest, and that Luke chapter 5 just happens to be the first of the fellowship meals that the priest will eat in this gospel. And We'll remind ourselves to take up his spirit, you see. So what about the face of the eagle then in the Gospel of John? Well, here's two lessons. The first is learning to read. That's wrong. Learning to reason from Scripture. Do you want the eyes of the eagle, brothers and sisters? Then get your Bibles open. Because the eyes of the eagle's spirit discernment are to be found in Scripture. It's all there in the Bible. Do you know, every ecclesia suffers from this problem as people grow up and come into the cycle of the truth. Every ecclesia in the world hears this. Why can't we do this? Why can't we go there? Why can't we see this? Why can't we wear that? Why can't we listen to this? Why can't we be this? You know, that's entirely the wrong focus, isn't it, in the truth? We should never, ever ask the question, why can't we do this? We should always ask the question, why should we do this? Why should we go there? Why should we see this? Why should we hear that? And the answer to the question, why should we, is, well, it's got to be found in Scripture first. So the lesson is, if we can't find a sound scriptural reason why we should do something, then don't do it. Don't ever trust your own opinion, brothers and sisters, on anything, because human opinion is notoriously fickle. If you can't provide a scriptural reason for what you're about to do or where you're about to go, then don't do it. We've got to learn to reason and live from scripture. That's how we begin to develop the eyes of the eagle. And here's a second lesson from the Gospel of John and from the face of the perfect judge. And it's the lesson of the judge himself, and that's this. Learning to maintain personal integrity in everything we do. You know, when we first come into the truth, everything's black and white, isn't it? And somehow as life moves on, well, all of a sudden it's not black and white anymore, it's grey. And I know, by the way, why that is. It isn't so much that it's grey as that we've discovered other principles. And something we thought was so clear because of one principle, which is still true, is now also affected by half a dozen other principles. But the one thing we never want to do as we progress in the truth is to begin slowly and gradually because of the world in which we live to gradually dilute the clarity of what is, after all, a divine principle. See, the, 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 the man in this gospel stands up as the perfect judge and says, I believe in light and dark. I believe in good and evil. I believe in spirit versus flesh. I believe in truth versus the lie. I believe in heaven versus earth. 
says the judge of this gospel. And he's so clear on his principles. You see, we want to avoid, we want to absolutely resist the hateful spirit of moral relativism that's plaguing our society today that says, well, as long as it feels good for you, perhaps it's all right. It's not all right, brothers and sisters. Unless God says it's good, it's not good. And if God says it's bad, it's bad. And to be governed by the clarity of personal integrity with everything we do in the truth. So that what we see, what we read, what we hear, what we see is utterly consistent with the principles that we live by, that we have integrity. The judge did. Now, brothers and sisters, these are not difficult to understand, are they? The lessons of the faces. Just difficult to do. But when we try and live by these things, we'll begin to understand the faces like we've never understood them before. So now let me take your mind to the future to travel into a moment yet to be revealed on the face of the earth when a whole community of faithful ones who've all been sealed by the Father's cherubic spirit will be gathered together. I'd like you to come to the book of Revelation in chapter 7 and to transport your minds into what might yet happen concerning ourselves and the Lord. In Revelation chapter 7, It says this in verse 2. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. You see, the vision of Revelation chapter 7 is about the community of faithful ones that were to be developed out of the Gentile world. A whole community was to be gathered together. This is not the Israel of the Old Testament. This is the Israel community yet to be manifested on the face of the earth. And they're all sealed with the thinking of God, the attributes of mind, the spiritual characteristics of the community of the saints sealed in their thinking concerning the Spirit of God. And verse 4 says concerning this community, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And of course you realize that a hundred and forty-four thousand is twelve times twelve. It's the four square encampment of Israel of the Old Testament, but it's not the same encampment, not this one. Because even though all the tribes of Israel are to be found, as verse 4 says, This particular community, verse 9, this great multitude which no man can number, is from all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. This is the four square encampment of the Israel of God. But it is markedly different to the twelve tribes of the Old Testament. So just... Look a little closer then at what this community looks like. 
Verse 4 says, And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed an hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Ah, now that's interesting, because now which tribe has come to the front? Why, the tribe of Judah. But Judah is the face of the lion, is it not? And the face of the lion is the face of the perfect king. So the first tribe in the reckoning of the order of the encampment of the Israel of God now is the face of the perfect king. The tribe of Judah is sealed first in this particular order. Oh, and you'd never guess which tribe would come second, would you? Revelation 7 verse 5 says, Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Now, what face was Reuben? Why, the face of the man. But the man is the face of the perfect priest. So which two tribes are sealed first? In this spiritual community, why the face of the king and the face of the priest, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Reuben. Did you notice that? And here's something else interesting. Did you notice in verse 7, the record says, Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000, of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Levi, Levi counted in the 12 tribes. Levi was never one of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament. They were separate, weren't they? How can Levi be one of the 12 tribes? Well, clearly what we're being told is that they are not now the leading priestly house. They're no longer separated out to lead the priestly function. They're now simply one of the 12 tribes. Oh, yes, they'll perform certain priestly ministrations, but there's another new priestly order which has already been brought to the front of the list under the banner of Reuben, the man, the priest. Levi is relegated into the ordinary sequence of the tribes. Of course, that creates a problem, doesn't it? Because if you add Levi back in, that must give us 13 tribes, must it not? Now that we've added Levi. And did you notice this also? How was Joseph in the Old Testament represented in the tribes? And the answer is why? By his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Was he not? But in Revelation 7... It says in verse 8, of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000, and of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. How can we add Joseph into the list of the tribes when his sons are already there? Won't that give us 14 tribes by the time we add Joseph in and Levi in? How is it that the tally still only comes to 12? Ah, well, some have been taken out. Now, the burning question is, in Revelation chapter 7, brothers and sisters, is which tribes do you think have been taken out? And why? And the answer is that the two tribes that have been removed are Ephraim, the son of Joseph, and the tribe of Dan. 
And I think that those two tribes have been removed out of the numbering for a very specific reason in both cases. Would you like to see why? Come with me to the first of Kings chapter 12. Hold your hand if you can in Revelation 7 and come to the first of Kings chapter 12. Here's why I think Ephraim has been removed from the number of Israel in Revelation. In first of Kings chapter 12, it says this. You'll remember that this was a, a terrible moment in the history of the nation. It says this, 1 Kings 12, verse 16. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. And this was going to be the beginning of the division of the kingdom, and the ten tribes are going to revolt. Well, who's going to lead them? Well, verse 20 says, It came to pass, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they called him unto the congregation... They made him king over all Israel. So now there is a division in the kingdom led by a man called Jeroboam. Do you know where Jeroboam came from? He was an Ephrathite of Zeridah. Guess what tribe that's in? You'd never guess. Why, the tribe of Ephraim. And you see where Jeroboam went, chapter 12, verse 25. So Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim. Do you know what the tribe of Ephraim stands for in the history of the nation, brothers and sisters? It's the spirit of rival kingship. Rival kingship to the king that God has chosen. There'll be none of that in the kingdom, says God. And that face, that name, that tribe is excised out of the list. In Revelation chapter 7, we'll only have the sealing of the king of Judah, the face of Judah. That's the king that God wants. We don't want rival kingship. That spirit's not permitted. And the tribe of Ephraim, because they were famous for the spirit of rival kingship, are removed from the list of Revelation chapter 7. But because Joseph always was promised the double portion... Manasseh's left, and Joseph is added back in, so that the double portion is retained. So why do you think Dan might be removed? Well, if you come to the book of Judges, I think we know exactly why Dan is removed. Judges chapter 18. They were removed, brothers and sisters, because their spirit was the same as Ephraim, but in another sphere. The record says in Judges 18 and verse 26 that the children of Dan went their way. And they came to Laish, verse 28, and because there was no deliverer, because it was far from Zidon, and they had no business with any, with any man, they took the city by fire. And verse 28 says at the end of that verse, and they, the tribe of Dan, built a city there for themselves and dwelt therein, and they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born unto Israel. Howbeit the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the children of Dan set up the graven image and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons 
were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land, and they set up Micah's graven image, which he made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that in the Hebrew scrolls of Judges 18, the Hebrew doesn't read Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. The actual Hebrew reads Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of... And in the Hebrew, it's M-S-H. Moshe. Because this was Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. But because that was considered to be such a disgraceful thing, this is, this is indeed Moses' own grandson, brothers and sisters, that leads this apostasy. And because the Jews felt that that did such a grave injustice to Moses, their lawgiver, over the top of the scroll, they tell you to read in the Hebrew to add another letter, N, so that now Moshe becomes Monasha. And to this day, they read it as Manasseh, but in fact, it's the son, the grandson of Moses himself. And what's he doing? What's the tribe of Dan famous for? Why? The spirit of rival priesthood, is it not? There'll be none of that in the kingdom, says God. There's no rival priesthood allowed in the kingdom. We've already got the sealing of the tribe of Reuben, the face of the perfect priest. There's no rival priesthood permitted, says God. And so, in Revelation chapter 7, the tribe of Ephraim is removed because it represents the spirit of rival kingship. And the tribe of Dan is removed because it represents the spirit of rival priesthood. Of course, what's interesting about that is that these two tribes were two of the other tribes with cherubic faces. If you take away the tribe of Ephraim, you've removed the face of the ox. And if you take away the tribe of Dan, you've removed the face of the eagle. And now come to Ezekiel chapter 41 and to the temple of the age to come. Ezekiel chapter 41. And we're told in verse 18 concerning the temple in Jerusalem, it says this. Ezekiel 41 verses 18 and 19 says, It was made with cherubim, cherubim and palm trees, so that a palm tree was between a cherub and a cherub. And every cherub had, why, not four faces, just two faces. So what faces might they be? Well, says verse 19, so that the face of a man was toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of a young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. And in the temple in the kingdom... There's only two faces in the cherubim, the face of the lion and the face of the man. So why is the face of the lion there, brothers and sisters? Well, the face of the lion is there in the kingdom because kingship is a principal role of Christ in the kingdom. That's his dominant face in the kingdom age, to be the king of all the world. 
to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. So that face is there. But the face of the ox is gone. So does that mean that Christ is not engaged in any service in the kingdom? Well, of course he is, brothers and sisters. But the lesson is that you see service is not the dominant aspect of Christ in the kingdom. When did the Lord perform his work as an ox in the spirit of service? Wasn't that fulfilled most particularly at his first advent when he came and labored to serve and labored to sacrifice, to minister and to give his life a ransom for many? The face of the ox was first seen in the first advent of Christ, but it's not the dominant aspect of the Lord's labors in the kingdom. And so the face of the ox is not seen. But the man is there, says Ezekiel. The face of the man is there. And you see the point. If the face of the man simply represents the humanity of Christ, then why would that face continue in the kingdom given that our Lord now shares the divine nature of his Father and that he's been lifted far beyond the humanity of mortal flesh? That face should go, shouldn't it, if it represents the Lord's humanity? Ah, but if the face of the man is the face of the perfect priest, then there's every reason for it to continue in the kingdom because, well, this is one of Christ's dominant works. How does the gospel, not the gospel, how does the prophet Ezekiel finish with a temple and a priest offering sacrifices in that temple? So the face of the man, of course, will remain. It's the other key work of the Lord in the kingdom age. But the eagle's not there. And now perhaps we understand, brothers and sisters, why I made the point in the Gospel of John that if the eagle simply represents Christ as the divine spirit manifestation of his Father, then why would that face disappear in the kingdom? If the face of the eagle is simply the spirit of the Father in the Son, then surely that face of all faces would continue throughout the kingdom age, but it doesn't. It's gone. It's not there, says Ezekiel 41. But if it symbolizes the face of the judge, then it's quite understandable why that face is gone. Ask yourself this question, brothers and sisters. When did the Lord exhibit the face of the judge, or when will he? Well, here's when I think that the face of the judge has been seen. The Lord judged Judah in A.D. 70, did he not? And the face of the judge was seen. The Lord, when he returns, will judge his household. Then the Lord will judge Gog. He will judge the nations that have come against Jerusalem. He will judge the house of Judah. He will judge the house of Israel. Then the Lord will judge the Babylon, the great Babylon, which is Rome. And then finally, the Lord will judge all flesh. But by the time the temple doors open, brothers and sisters, and by the time the kingdom age begins, all the world has been subdued by the power of the judge. And the sea is like glass. And his dominant work as judge 
of executing the Father's justice has in large measure been fulfilled and the kingdom age will be a time of peace. Will it not? And the eagle face of God's judgments having been poured out upon the earth will be accomplished ere the kingdom age begins. And mark this, brothers and sisters, carefully, that whatever work of judgment might be left, it will be co-joined into his role as king. And whatever work of service might be left will be subsumed into his role as priest. But at the last, we're left in Ezekiel with just the face of the lion and the face of the man. We're left with the king, priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And if we are to be like the Lord, brothers and sisters, then now perhaps we understand why Revelation says so precisely and so well that they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God not kings and servants, and priests, and judges, just kings and priests, and we shall reign on earth, says Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, if in the mercy of God we're privileged to join him. So let's go forth, brothers and sisters, from our Bible school this year, and read our gospel pages afresh. And be thankful in the providence of God that we've been given for so that we can come and look upon the Lord from every side of the cherubic faces and see another aspect of Christ. And to treasure each gospel for the uniqueness of the face that it shows to us. You know the remarkable thing about all those faces, brothers and sisters? You see, what we've done is looked at each face individually that we might ponder its lessons and see its depth. The remarkable thing, the amazing thing about our Lord Jesus Christ is that he manifested all the faces simultaneously, all at the same time. He was aware of all those principles. Every day of his life, he was aware of matters of judgment and matters of service and things of kingship and principles of priesthood. He knew them all. Well, so shall we, brothers and sisters, if we gaze into the gospel page so that in looking upon Christ, we might be changed into the same image from glory to glory. I do hope that when you go home and read the gospels, that by and by and from time to time, a verse will suddenly leap off the page and strike your attention that you've seen the flash of one of the faces in the Gospels and are privileged to do so as we wait the time of his coming. Let's be ready for him, brothers and sisters, when he comes. And pray God that when he does, 
He will look upon us all and see his face. 